formed a bunch of my scientific learning while I was in the Southeast, because that's real deer biology there. I mean, you, you know, it's not that, as you know, thousands of acres of corn and soybean fields, you got to dig in, do some real, real work down there. back in the southeast whitetail you might have thought i packed up shop here on the podcast because it's been a minute since i put that episode but i have been i apologize i've been i've been busy ever since right of christmas when i launched my uh consulting business southeast whitetail consulting i have been very busy and i've been trying to balance uh that workload um but i've got a number of podcasts already already recorded uh in the can that i'm gonna start putting out weekly starting today i've got zach Rakovich. Coming back on uh, from Whetstone Habitat, we, we got another great episode lined up there. I've got uh, several to finish out the Southern Hunt Southern Hunting Culture series. Uh, I'll be mixing that in to finish those out, and I have a number of turkey guests coming up. A couple of turkey biologists, and uh, we'll be covering um, a new turkey uh, nonprofit conservation organization. Uh, get that going and. Um, I'm flying out tomorrow to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, for the Southeastern Deer Study Group Conference. I've been doing those for a number of years. Uh, I love them. I, I just love that. I just nerd out on, on all that deer habitat. Uh, new science, you know, studies. I mean, I, you know, so much of that stuff is just current active studies that are going on now, which is quite phenomenal to uh, be a part of that. So if you're out in Louisiana, Baton Rouge area, drop me a line. Uh, especially if you're going to be at that conference. And so let's get right to it with Zach Rakovich from Whetstone Habitat. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Southeast Whitetail. I'm Mark Aslam, and I am happy to have him online for a second time. Repeat guest, Zach Rakovich. Zach, thanks for being on. Not a problem. Always a pleasure. Had a lot of good feedback from that from that first uh, episode we did. Zach runs um, Whetstone Habitat. You've had a get a really good year last year following your content seemed oh, like yeah. you seemed like you were all over the place consulting and i think i worked in 11 states last year so that's it's awesome. good growing yeah it, it's been a dream come true to be honest it's for anybody that um, for anybody that that maybe didn't listen to that first episode you were on can you tell us briefly about you know what you do and a little bit about whetstone habitat yeah absolutely so started whetstone habitat uh consulting for habitat management, uh, work with landowners to develop and implement management practices to help manage their properties more sustainably, you know, improve the, the hunt, huntability of their land. 
uh, wildlife biologist by trade, kind of spent some time bouncing around doing doing the seasonal gig as most young wildlife biologists do, bouncing around the countries. And, you know, the longer I, I spent moving around working these different, working for different state and federal agencies, the, the more I just kind of wanted to go out there and do my own thing. So uh, I, got, I got sick of seeing all my supervisors sitting behind a desk all day. So eventually it got to the point where started started doing consulting on the side and eventually started taking over full time. And it's, it's, it's been really incredible, you know, whitetail, or, I, I'm obsessed. And I think, you know, anyone listening to this podcast understands the sentiment, but one of the things as a biologist that's really cool for me as far as working all over the country managing for this animal, is i mean there's they're so driven towards that edge you hear that all the time the edge species that a white-tailed deer is and you know when two different habitat types meet you creates an edge so the more different habitat types i can squeeze into a property you know and, and, and synchronize them in a way that that promotes good deer movement the more edge you're creating internally you know it's not always super obvious and it's one of those things where by managing for a white-tailed deer you're improving habitat for everything on the landscape so it's just makes my heart happy every opportunity i get to get boots on the ground work with landowners it's, it's what drives me i like that yeah and that, that that ties right into your um uh business slogan give your property the edge mm-hmm. makes sense yes. yeah that's uh that's the way to do it um yes sir great the habitat so 11 states last year you you, you were all over the place oh yeah Oh yeah. Hope, hoping to repeat this year. So I, I got a couple I'm looking forward to getting back to. Well, good. Was there anything you saw last year that, um, was just something new? I mean, did you see anything last year as far as, I mean, you know, existing habitat, you know, species issue, something you saw in person that just kind of you hadn't seen before just surprised you? Yeah, so the the one that jumps to my mind was I was doing a consult in Nebraska, southeast Nebraska, mm-hmm. and the cedar encroachment going on out there. So so that part of the country is traditionally a tall grass prairie, uh, one of the most biologically diverse habitats we have in the country. And I, I think we're down, what, 90% of our prairies at this point. It, it, they're biologically diverse for a reason. You know, they got good soil. It's relatively tame topography it's good areas to farm which is where all of our grasslands are going so getting down there and just seeing the sheer amount of cedar encroachment and it and it puts the the landowners in a bit of a predicament because it's not like you can just light it on fire and, and start over yeah. those cedars torch and they'll go a long way so it's it's a multi-step process in order to mitigate that but i i that client is he's kicking butt man he's got me he's sending me pictures having the the forestry mulcher out there and the burn piles all ready to go letting them season for a little nice. bit we're lighting them up and he's doing everything right and I, that's a repeating thing no matter where you're at in the country it's like mother nature just needs a little nudge in the right direction sometimes so whether it's just getting rid of those cedars you know one two process get rid of the cedars and then put fire on the ground see what happens um the the, the prayer I, I got a soft spot in my heart for prairie so uh, as far as getting a visual on some some major um habitat loss going on in this country that's that's the one that jumps to my mind it's most memorable from 22 yeah that that sounds like an awesome project out there so what uh what's kind of like the um 
what would you suggest for someone? Someone's I mean, so how was that landowner take taking those out? You said that they're going to treat the, you know, cut them down, spray them, and then burn, or they're they're cutting some of them and they're piling them up where it makes mm-hmm. sense. And the way it worked is the property was big enough and the cedars, uh, those thickets were were big enough where it's going to be a multi year process. So what I'm doing is I'm having them take it out and you know, fifty yard strips working mm-hmm. his way back year after year. And so you'll take out a section of cedars, whether that's with the forestry mulcher or cutting them and piling them up and burning them. So you're getting rid of that section. And then you're going to, the next year you'll follow up with the, with the next section. So that first section you worked on, once you get two sections cleared, you can go ahead and burn that first section because you already got your fire, your fire break built in by the second section you did subsequently. So it's going to be a staggered approach to kind of, it, it's hard to get all that done in one year. Um, but what I was telling the, even if you could get it done in one year, I, I almost encourage a multi-step process. Cause then you already get going on changing up your, your fire return intervals. And you, yeah. you get a chance to see, you know, that, that first section that you're trying to restore what's in the seed bank, what's coming back. Do I have to plant? You know, my, my first thing is if you don't have to plant, I, I never recommend planting natives, but there's certain circumstances where you don't have a choice. So he'll get a, he'll get a good taste of that next year when he goes to to manage those, those first areas he opened up. And it's, it's one of those things where it's like, how do you, how do you eat an elephant, you know, one bite at a time. It's just, yeah. it, it, it takes, it takes time and effort. Yeah. I like that approach. Yeah. Cause you know, sometimes, um, I mean, we've done that at our own farm, just there's been some areas where we, we, we know that we need to do a lot of work on, but we just take our time, you know, just kind of do, do it section by section, kind of stagger out, um, the areas just, we're not doing it all at once for a number of reasons. So that's awesome. I'm sure you probably got a busy, busy year lined up, um, going into 2023. Um, well, so what kind of, what kind of winter habitat projects are you looking at right now? What, what are you discussing with your clients about doing, um, besides that one out, out in the grasslands? The the biggest thing is like familiarizing yourself with the invasive species that you're dealing with on your property. I, I can't tell you how many times I've looked at either a former manager plan somebody had written. Sometimes it's even been, you know, I, I saw one that was written by NWTF. I saw a couple that were NRCS projects. And I'll, I'll look over this paperwork when I get a new client. And, and so often they just completely neglect the fact that you need to treat those invasives before you start working on the canopy. So familiarizing yourself with what that vegetation looks like in the wintertime. Like the multiflora rose has lost most of its leaves by now, but it's a pretty distinguishable shrub. You can get in there and, and start treating those in the wintertime. It's it's not as easy as doing a foliar spray, but you can treat it with the stump sprout type approach. Um, same thing with the bush honeysuckle. It's like getting those those invasives out of out of the way and get them treated. At least get a good jump on it before you start getting out the chainsaw and opening up that canopy. That's always, that's always a big one. I'm, I'm pushing my clients for um, paying attention to that, you know, learning your winter dendrology skills, being able to tell what tree you're looking at when there's no leaves on it. That's something where every one of my clients I'm going to recommend pick up a field guide. You know, there's plenty of phone uh, apps you can use on your phone as well to start, start to get the hang of being able to ID those trees in, in the winter. But if it's something where somebody struggles with that and they're not really sure what it is, my, my advice is usually, uh, if you don't know what it is, don't kill it. Um, 
in most circumstances that that tends to be a pretty good rule but there are exceptions to it you know if you're doing something like a like a micro clear cut or a betting thicket have at it you know um but it does help if you can id it you know like i i get into i have a lot of tulip poplar on my place and when i'm doing those type of cuts you know i always treat the tulip poplar not because it's invasive or anything but it it kind of responds in a way that an invasive plant would you know it throws off a million sprouts it grows out of the reach of the deer almost immediately so being able to tell what you're looking at as you're working on it is always a, a step in the right direction so um yeah just getting those invasives cleared out of the way and then and then the other thing that i've been pushing a lot of my clients and past clients currently is now's the best time of year you just got done with deer season you saw how the deer were utilizing your food plot let's say food plot where they're entering and exiting that food plot you you know if it's working or not. If the deer are popping out where you don't want them, go do something about it. You know, go hinge cut a tree where they're coming in. Now's the time to make those adjustments while it's fresh in your head because you're going to get to next season and you're not going to get around to it. And then this deer are going to be popping out where they were last year and you're going to be kicking yourself that you didn't do something about it sooner. So I, I, I think going, reviewing your year, kind of taking the time to uh, kind of conceptualize what's been happening on your property and make those little minor, you know, 220 grit adjustments uh now is a great time to do it while it's all still fresh yeah i like that i like that especially the hunting side to it because that yeah i mean it's like people and is which is as well as they should you know we'll start jumping into habitat projects maybe start thinking about food plots for this upcoming year and stuff like that burning and all that's great and they should absolutely force your work but um what you said about the hunting setups that that's that's a pretty key element because I mean, that's, you know, what a lot of people are doing all the above, uh, management tactics. They're doing it for hunting for the most part. And, um, yeah, I can't tell how many times I've, I've seen it, <clears throat> whether it's, excuse me, someone talking to, or maybe I'm just hunting at a buddy's property and, you know, or maybe I own property and, you know, all of a sudden time goes by and, you know, you, you start thinking about all the previous years on one, on one particular stand. And maybe you maybe like the stand, but it's just been underproducing, you know, it's just not, right. it just hasn't, you haven't been seeing the deer, you haven't been maybe seeing or shooting bucks on it. That's, it, it, it's, it's time to change. I mean, quite frankly, I mean, some of these stands really should be overhauled and altered, adjusted, or maybe just, maybe, I mean, the, take it down. Some, right. Sometimes this stand doesn't need to be there. <laughs> they're there are some years where we just won't hunt a stand. Maybe we won't plant the food plot or we will plant it and just let it be and leave the stand or move the stand or just don't hunt it just to kind of change things up. Um, or maybe you have a stand where you just don't hunt for the first month or two and just kind of let it sit. But yeah, there, there's so much like what you said that goes in, in, in the hunt setups that just, they get put on the back burner, which makes sense. Cause a lot of that stuff you can do along the way. And some of your management stuff is timely, you know, time sensitive, seasonal, but you're right. If, if you don't think about it, when it's fresh in your mind, you forget about that kind of stuff. And then the next thing you know, it's the summer, it's early fall and you know, you're hanging stand, new stands or trail cameras. And it's just, um, and I, you know, I, <clears throat> if I'm going to move stands or, or do that kind of stuff, I would rather do it now. Um, of course, you know, if you trim, you know, depending on how much you need to trim, you, you'll probably need to go back and retrim before the season starts. But um, that kind of heavy lifting is 
typically better this time of year than it is in July and August. Yeah. Well, and, and on top of that, if you're getting in there postseason, you know, before spring green up and, and you're trying to open it up around that stand, that's the best time to do it. You're going to get all those stem yeah. sprouts all year long. You know, if you wait until the summertime and cut that tree, you'll get a little bit of sprouts coming out, but you know, your window of, of productivity out of that stump is drastically reduced the longer you wait. So doing something as simple as just flush cutting a lot of those trees around your stand at ankle height, you know, something as simple as that it's going to your early season bow activity is going to drastically increase because all of a sudden you got that additional food source right there around your stand. Plus you got better visibility. So yeah, that's right. Great time to, to, to key in on, on those stand locations. That's right. I like that. So let's see duck season just wrapped up this past weekend. And I know you were doing more of it this year, right? I'm officially a duck hunter. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, it's one of those, even when I was in college, I was getting invites and uh, never made it out. I don't know. I always had an excuse. Didn't I didn't want to like it was my favorite one. Um, <laughs> turns out I, I love it. <laughs> it's fun. You know, my, I had a couple different experiences. I was invited by a good buddy of mine, Jeremy Corber. He, he owns company Fit the Hunt. Um, and he invited oh, yeah. me up to Missouri to uh, to do a duck hunt with him and his dog Thor and a couple of his buddies. And that was my first experience ever. Um, he said, show up with your waiters, bring a shotgun and a muck seat. So I had to Google what a muck seat was. Um, picked one of them up, drove out there. And, you know, it was, it was incredible. The, the thing I really liked about it where I can see how it gets addicting is, you know, a couple of the sits, we, one of the days we went out and we waited for the morning, to draw pills and, and get a blind on state land and go out. And that was great. That was a cool experience. Um, I can see how I might have never done that again if we wouldn't have got a blind that morning and <laughs> I'd have been pretty yeah. upset. But, um, the other hunts we were going, you know, they had leases where they're, they were flooding some corn or soybean fields or they had dikes built. Um, and just messing around, we had like maybe half a dozen decoys and dragging yeah. all our stuff out there. And the thing that I really liked was, you know, you're getting fresh ducks whenever they're flying. So if you got something you want to make an adjustment, for instance, when we were sitting on one side of the pond and the sun was coming up behind us, you know, we, we had the, the wood lot. So we had a bunch of shade in front of us, our, our decoys, even once they started getting some sun from where we could see it, because the sun was behind us, all those ducks coming in, in front of us, those decoys weren't getting any light. So making an adjustment, like quick hustle over to the other side of the pond where you can get more sunlight on those decoys <laughs> or like, yeah. you know, you can make these minor adjustments during the hunt and see how it pays off because you're, it's not like hunting a whitetail or if, Oh, he comes in on a bad wind, your, your hunt's shot. So I really like that problem solving aspect of it. That said, there was a couple things that, that I thought were silly, like those sleds we're dragging all of our equipment and gear out in those big sleds. <laughs> yeah. It's like, why why aren't there wheels on that thing? You know, they like make a little chariot. The dog can tow it out there. I don't know, but like <laughs> dragging that thing out was like, it, it, you're in all your camo, you're burning up hauling a sled half a mile back to the truck. That wasn't, that was a good workout. But uh, yeah, I think there's gotta be some better, more creative solutions for stuff like that. But it was an absolute blast, man. I, I went out last Monday to Real Foot Lake mm -hmm. out in West Tennessee. And uh, that was another great experience. You know, it was, it was all new to me. It's Tennessee's only large nat natural lake. Um, my guide was a third generation guide out there. You know, his grandfather was out. Oh, nice. 
build them blinds. They put every blind in a different family member's name. And it was just a really cool experience. You know, we were at the boat launch and there's probably 10 different guides there and they're all giving each other a hard time. And um, it, I can, I can see the appeal. And my biggest takeaway was, you know, I don't have to dive in head first to duck hunting. I don't have to go out and buy four dozen decoys. I don't have to get a bird dog. You know, it, it's a matter of, I own waders. I own a shotgun and it, I have buddies that do the same thing. You know, I can get out there and mess around. I can explore. I, yeah. I can learn a new, learn a new trait and understand it. You know, I must've seen thousands and thousands of ducks come in and land on the water throughout my life. Usually when I'm fishing or wakeboard, whatever it may be when I'm out on the water and I never pay much attention to it. But now every time I'm watching them, it's like, you know, how are they coming in? What are they looking at? What direction are they coming from? Where's the wind going? And it's slowly trying to conceptualize everything going on around me. And it's just been, it's been a cool experience. I look forward to learning more as the years to come. What, um, what kind of ducks were y'all seeing out there? So got a couple of green heads, um, in Missouri, I got, I'll tell you what the coolest one to watch was, was the ringneck ducks. They were coming in and they're like little fighter jets, the left 16s fighter. You can hear them when they bank. It was just incredible watching them. Um, they're kind of a pain in the butt to clean. So we got some ringnecks. I got a shoveler. Um, nobody got a pintail that I was with, but so that's still on my list. Um, a beautiful, kind of a couple beautiful green wing teal. Um, nice. Yeah, and then I got a gadwall in Missouri, and then real foot. We went out. We got three ducks between the, between the five hunters. We ended up getting two mallards in a in a gadwall. But again, it was it was a great experience. I was with great company, and and I just um I'm fired up about it, man. I'm I'm already thinking on my property. There's there's one area in particular where whenever the creek comes up, whenever whetstone floods it'll spill over into our into our soybean fields and i'll mm. notice uh throughout the years whenever that happens if they're, if it's muddy even they don't even have to be standing water there but if it's a little damp and muddy i'll see those wood ducks walk up out of the creek and start picking that spent grain off the ground and <laughs> i'm thinking man if i just pump some of that water out of the creek up onto that field yeah. it already holds you know <laughs> like my mind's already working trying to figure out how i can get a little a little wood duck hole on my farm <laughs> Yeah, that's what we we mostly just have wood ducks <clears throat> where we are. Um, occasionally some other mig- migratory um, ducks, but it's mostly woodies. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I you know um, a lot of people don't like beavers in the property, but um, they you know they'll they'll pull up a lot of places on the Springhead Creeks, the swamp, and can just just create little little woody holes or, or just some really some pockets to where they can concentrate and you can actually hunt um, mm-hmm. as opposed to some of that flooded timber, some of that, that older part of the swamp can be pretty difficult just to be able to get in there and set, <clears throat> set up decoys. So, you know, um, the beavers around our property, I, I haven't had a problem with, um, I don't really mind them and they do create some, um, but yeah, this, this time of year, right towards the end of the season, We'll just get woodies, just kind of just 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 random all over the place, like like little water holes that are for wildlife. Yeah. <laughs> there'll be a pair <laughs> of jumping uh, them out of puddles. Yeah, there'll there'll be a pair that uh, will be in there. We, uh, you know, I was gonna hunt. I wanted to duck hunt this past weekend, but we were we stayed up late coon hunting um, Friday and Saturday night, and so it was it's kind of one of those things where you either stay up all night. And go straight in the in, in the duck blind, which is not a good idea, or you just go to bed. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so um 
I've never done a coon hunt. It, it was that was my first time doing it with like really doing it like with a coon yeah. hound. Um, I figured I would enjoy it just because it, it was an experience, but I didn't know what I would think about it. But it was actually fun. I mean, once I got over the fact of just being around this really loud dog, this barking, you know, <laughs> in the middle of the night, <laughs> which doesn't doesn't bother me. I mean, if we're gonna do it, I'd rather do it right now. You know, like right after the season. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, you know, and it's just really one dog any given time working. So, um, but it, it was cool to see him work. I mean, just like any other dog hunting dog. Did did your property feel different walking around it at night? Like, did, did um, that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it did. I mean, it's 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 pretty much like, you know, even during the deer season, or you're just walking somewhere at dark maybe mm-hmm. some areas where you're not really deer hunting, you know, just some thicker right. areas where the raccoons are in the swamps and wetland areas. So, and you know, some of those you have a headlamp or whatever, and you can walk it a thousand times in daylight and it's fine. Right. But then, you know, it's pitch black and you have a light or maybe like a red light. Cause apparently the, the red head headlamps are better for the raccoons or something. I don't know. It's just, it's harder to see, you know, you yeah. just, you feel like, yeah, to answer your question, yeah, I mean, sometimes you kind of feel like you're uh, somewhere else. But it was um, – there was actually a coyote that uh, responded, was kind of a sort of howling kind of, uh, in, re- kind of in response to that coon hound. But, yeah, it was fun. Uh, it was not as – I kind of thought it would be like a slam dunk. You know, like mm-hmm. you tree them, you walk up and shoot them out of it. You know, that's I, I've never – I've never hunted. That's my first time hunting with dogs, but they tree something. So I, I've never, I just never experienced it. But there was only one tree where a raccoon ran up, and it it, it wasn't their den tree. And I think they they were just that, that raccoon was caught by the dog and just ran up a tree. That one you could see it easily. But all, all the other raccoons, man, they they go up these trees even this time of year with the leaves off of it. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine doing it in the spring or summer when the leaves are on the tree, but yeah, it was hard sometimes to just be able to see I'm them. Sure. Even yeah. with, even with the best Q beam, um, they just kind of disappeared, but yeah, it, it was, um, it was fun. Try to try, try to take some raccoons, possums and armadillos, um, out. Did, do y'all have a lot of armadillos in Tennessee? We just, so Tennessee, they've, they've been here. I lived here in 2000. And 2018, I was here for mm-hmm. about six months, and I noticed a couple of them around. Um, but up near my farm, I'm right across the Kentucky border where my farm's at. Uh, we just started noticing them last year for the first time. Really? So I think they they are moving north a little bit. Um, I saw my first pig, too, the county south of me um, on the side of the interstate. So I don't know. Pigs and armadillos kind of go hand in hand, I feel like, as far as suitable habitat goes. Um, so yeah, is, is that something where you're noticing, uh, predation, um, or the armadillos or is that a very, very feasible in your opinion down South? Is that a feasible approach taking care of some of them? Yeah. As far as, I mean, yeah. it, it should be that it's not always armadillos. You can, you can, you can, you can, uh, just using a regular trap. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and in fact, you, you don't even we've built some traps where armadillos just, they just kind of tunnel around and there's some wood traps. I'm sure, I'm sure someone can Google it and 
it, it uh, there's no bait. It's just um, there's there's two doors that open, and they when they go in, it's going to trip one of them. It's going to trip it, and mm-hmm. the doors both doors shut. But once you get one armadillo in it, you get that smell in it, and right. then you just you, you just put it up against a house or a structure where they root around. They just go right, and they just kind of tunnel their way in. You capture them, but yeah, I mean, w- what we found is that there's there's not many predators that go after go after an armadillo. Mm-hmm. Um, to kill them, and they just you know they they root around. But I mean, I see them around Savannah. Like they are, they are all up and down the coast. I, our farm is, you know, kind of lower, lower west ish, South Carolina. You know, two hours from the coast, but they're all they're all up up and down the coast. I mean, they mm-hmm. they are. I mean, we see them on the highways in in Savannah, dead on the side of the road. They, they're in. And they get in, in in a lot of these subdivisions, and just you know root around, cause damage, just like deer, you know, well in people's yards. Yeah. Um, but people tend to think deer are pretty, you know, and they like and they, they like to they're watch. Like, they're a lot cuter than an armadillo. I'll yeah, <laughs> they they like to watch deer. So yeah, that's um. But I mean, as far as like management or tactics for 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 armadillos, I, I really haven't come across anything other than those simple traps which which they are pretty um pretty simple to catch a, a, a lot easier than um coyotes that's for sure um but yeah. we I, I didn't see one possum this past really? weekend <laughs> um just i mean even at night you know being out all all hours of the night so i'm not complaining but uh, we didn't didn't see any and then i um got on some gum trees um we've got some areas um just clusters of gums it just you know you just you you can't get after everything every given year and i was just trying to go after some of these gums and just cut them down spray them and you know just some of those are going to be year long projects yeah pro- progress not perfection that's that's what i always preach to my clients you know <laughs> it's going to take a while it's going to be ongoing you're never going to be done with this stuff like that's, that's not part of the cards, but that's not why we do it. You know, I, I've, I've said it before. And I'll say it a thousand times. My favorite part of, of deer hunting is the habitat side. It's everything leading up to deer season. That's yeah. That, that, that brings me the most joy. Cause I, cause I know it's not just benefiting me directly. Um, so. Yeah. That, yeah. That's I'm with you. I mean, just, just the habitat side the management side especially like if you can do something any given calendar year whether it's just moving your stand set up maybe you plant some trees or just something and then and then it, and then you see a direct payoff during the hunting season whatever it might be deer duck quail turkey whatever it might be you know to where you're doing something and then the fall it pays off like something you know direct or direct correlation that's yeah. that's i love that 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 type of story you know where like you know it, it might you know it's someone shoots a nice buck on your property and you know it's not a state record buck but like there's a reason why you saw that deer or that he was, that head, buck. He was heading straight to that bedding thicket cut you yeah it's something years. like that that <laughs> that's um especially like right now like planning i mean i you know I can plan out food plots and where to burn, but you know, I mean, that's something like you're going to do when you kind of know what you're going to do, but just the, I guess the habitat side, like the designing, there's so much creativity that like yep. someone can put in it 
that that's what really gets me um, excited, fired up because, you know, you could ask a hundred different wildlife managers, biologists about whatever habitat question, hundred people you might get, I don't know, but, you know, 50 different answers, whatever it is, but, but you're going to have a lot of creative answers and, and, and you have a lot of good content. They might all be different, but they're going to probably get you about the same place. That, that, that's what, I that's what I look forward to doing. Um, yeah. Land management is kind of that perfect blend of art and science, you know, yeah. the, the creativity there's, there's enough whether in a lot of times, you know, it's, it, it's observational data. Like we can go through and we can, we can dig through and find some, some, research papers relating to the topic but it, it we're the ones out there in the field witnessing the results so just just being cognizant of that while you're out there and observant of what's going on around you you can, you can make some pretty good judgment calls on the fly you know regardless of your background or career path absolutely i, I was having a conversation with someone recently about uh predators in you know, coyotes and uh i mean you can most people can tell pretty quickly, you know, how someone feels about predators or coyotes and different things like that. And in, in the hunting world, and they were very, you know, I think pro hunting them, which is fine with me. I mean, I'm not, that's fine if someone wants to hunt it, but you know, it's coyote management is only, um, you know, it's not going to get you so far. Um, it's not a silver bullet, but they're asking me about, you know, have I, word on properties with like this type of habitat, you know, like basically like poor habitat, you know, where someone mm -hmm. maybe can't, cause you know, everyone can't, if you have, you know, hunting access or your hunting lease, you know, unless you own the land, you, you might not be able to really alter things. Just like right. if you lease a house and you're the tenant of a house, you, you're gonna have to get permission. You should get permission to paint or do certain things. And landlords probably won't want you doing certain things for a number of reasons. Um, and, you know, the kind of question was like, well, you know, have you worked, you know, in this type of habitat area, you know, it's like, well, it's like when you understand certain things about the habitat, like you understand the, 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 the predator prey relationship between a coyote and a whitetail, and you understand the science behind it, then you can apply that to really a lot of places around, um, that maybe, you know, you might not be familiar with that type of poor habitat conditions where fawns are being picked off. But if you know the relationship, right. you know, you know that if, if it was poor habitat, you're going to have more predation. I mean, there's a reason. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, that's, that's what I really just nerd out on is probably the habitat side and, and, uh, and the QDM side, just the whole science of, you know, deer management, uh, the food plots and all that stuff I like, but it's just all stuff you do, you know, but it's, right. and, and, and there's a lot of creativity in that. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I mean, just like what you said, you know, burning, you know, you, you, you earlier talked about taking up sections and burning It's a very smart way of doing it. Um, but yeah, but just, just kind of looking at someone's property and trying to figure out, especially like if they feel like they have the deer, but maybe they aren't seeing them. Right. shooting enough it's like kind of trying to figure that out well like what, what what's missing from them to be able to get that point i love those kind of problems yeah and it's one of those things where oftentimes you'll get into conversations and very rarely are you in a circumstance where where predation is going to be you know hindering your deer herd an actual yeah. threat 
threat to the numbers of your deer herd. If you are in those situations and you are on a place that you're leasing and you're not allowed to do much habitat work, quit shooting does. You know, like your rut activity is not going to be as right. prolific. Yeah. But if you like, just get more fawns on the ground. If that's your only option, like there are solutions. The worst thing you can do in a lot of circumstances is nothing. So. Yeah. <clears throat> and, yeah, yeah, Brian. And, Every, every, every property is different. And I get people reaching out to me all the time that, that have leases, just, you know, trying to pick my brains a little bit. And it's, you know, you want my advice on, on most of those properties has nothing to do with habitat. You know, sh most circumstances shoot more does and quit shooting young bucks. You know, if you, your hands are tied with the habitat thing, do that. But if you are in that weird circumstance where you do have a crazy influx of predators for whatever reason, and you're sure that's the reason maybe you take the opposite approach. Maybe you leave more does out there and, and hope you flood those, those predators more. I like that. I like that idea. So you, I saw, um, I have not read the entire, uh, issue, but this latest issue of quality whitetails, the national deer association magazine, you've got an article in it, I believe. Is that correct? Yes, yes sir. So what do you, I think last time we had you on, we, I had that <laughs> you want to, uh, I say we as if trying to make it seem like we're a bigger, bigger organization, just me. You had, you had written um, um, an article about sanctuaries. Mm -hmm. Well, no, no, I'm sorry. You have it, but it was, it was about um, a heat cover, I believe. No, thermal cover. Thermal yep. cover, right? Yep. Yep. Summertime okay. thermal cover. And then, right, I'm sorry, cover from the heat. And so what was this, what was this latest article? So this most recent one I did for them was on hinge cutting, kind of the, uh, hinge cutting is one of those things. I throw coyote hunting into that same category where it's Ooh. something that a, that a landowner can do <laughs> that gives them immediate gratification it makes them feel like they're having a bigger impact than they really are. And again, like as with all things in wildlife management, you got to have the caveat in most circumstances. So when, when I'm getting to properties, a lot of times, I, I don't know what it is. I think it's the, it's the visual part of like pushing a tree over and, and it's very attainable for yeah. regardless of what fitness level you are to go out there and trees as big as your arm, you know, to hinge them over. It, it's very satisfying. It, it looks like you're having a big impact. But what I keep running into over and over again, especially I look at something like a bedding thicket where you're trying to increase the amount of vegetation per square yard on the landscape, you're hinging a tree, you're leaving all those, all, it's going to leaf out again the next year. You're not putting any more sunlight on the ground. It's going to shade out the area that it's hinged over. So it's actually kind of counterintuitive to what you're trying to accomplish in those types of circumstances. So the article itself was kind of the issue, the, the areas where I see people over utilizing hinge cutting and then kind of the circumstances where I use it on a regular basis. So the most regular basis. So for instance, in, on a bedding thicket cut, let's say we're doing one in, in Kentucky or Ohio, uh, I'm not going to recommend doing more than a third of the trees in a hinge cut. You know, I, I much prefer to go through and flush cut those trees. I might even treat, like I said earlier, the tulip poplars, um, treat, treat that with herbicide. Um, but the further north you go, like when I'm in Minnesota consulting or I'm in Western New York, if, the further north I go, I'll kind of 
fudge those numbers where if I'm doing a betting ticket cut up there, I might increase it to 50, 60% hinge cutting because you're getting more snow up there. You want to get some yeah. more woody brows up higher for them. But for the most part, I, I think people just aren't really, or, or they'll do a, uh, a hinge cut project adjacent to their main access trail. I see that all the time. I can't tell you how many times I see that. And then they're jumping deer every time they're getting to their stand. Um, short yeah. of getting a, you know, get a forestry mulcher in there or go through and take a saw and cut that hinge tree, you know, cut it and then treat it. Um, there's some options where you can try to fix it, but, but if you're doing it right off a of main access trail, you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot 10 times out of 10. Yeah. I, yeah. we've done some hinge cuts, um, just, just really to try some out. And that was, I guess coming up on two years ago. Um, and they, they've been used, but just really not, not like what you, you would think, but in our area, I mean, we were doing it to try it. Um, just try just, just to see, but it, it, in our, in our area, it's like, it, it's an option for deer to bet in those areas, but there's just, but there's far better security. So like whether or not, you know, someone thinks it's better, you know, from their percept, from their perception, you know, as far as true safety, there's pine thickets or there's volunteer growth thickets. That's safer, you know, for right. um, mm -hmm. that, you know, predators, you know, can't circle and, you know, downwind as easy. So, We've done it, um, but um, I, I mean, if I'm going to do it, it's not really to create bedding. It's maybe just to create some structure around fields, or maybe just to really kind of just knock some stuff over, get a little structure, get a little, you know, maybe for quail or something, just to you know try to get a little uh, safety thickets, what you know, whatnot, get a little sunlight, have a little structure, some birds can get in there, and but. Yeah. yeah, well, one one of the main utilizations I have for the for the hinge cut is like we were talking about earlier, blocking access trails. You know, yeah, uh, on a field edge, I, I split I, uh, an edge feather project. I'll split up into two categories. You know, an an open edge is one that's porous. Those deer can pour in in and out from anywhere. If if you're doing a large linear food plot and you don't really care you know the deer bedding up on the hilltop above it and you don't really care where they're coming in do do an open edge you know make sure those deer can go in and out wherever they want but if you if you want to steer them towards your stand you know hinge those trees parallel with the field edge you know just hinge them in a line going all the way to the tree yeah a deer could jump over it yeah it might be able to crawl underneath it but nine times out of ten they're going to walk around it and they're going to get used to walking around it and the more that deer walks around it the deer around it are going to walk around <laughs> yeah. it you know it's not that hard yeah hinge cutting is great for that because if you're just piling up a brush pile eventually that stuff's going to deteriorate and break down but if you're doing a hinge cut it's going to hold its integrity for a little bit longer absolutely you brought up something that I see a good, a good amount. What, what would you suggest somebody if they have, they got their stand set up and let's just assume the stand set up, what, whatever it is, it's just, it's pretty damn good. You know, the food plot, whatever it is, maybe it's just, just a lock on the woods. However, they, ha they have a really good access trail cut in, you know, maybe they've, maybe it's bush hog and they even dissed it. So they're just mm -hmm. quiet, you know, so they're walking on dirt. I know some people take a leaf blower or whatever, but anyways, 
you've got a really good access trail. However, it's a little too good and deer are using it, you know, deer fun. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, we've done a lot of different things, um, you know, just creating that, keeping that same integrity of being able to slip in quietly and stealth like, but maybe putting a, a few, I mean, I put I'll, every now and then I put some obstacles maybe in the way that maybe you'll throw a yep. deer off. Like, like you said, like a fallen tree, maybe cut something down to where maybe a little, you got to kind of weave in and out, maybe trying to block a deer. But I do see that a good amount. Like, you know, we noticed it at our place. And then I've noticed it at, at other people's places that maybe they didn't notice where you've got deer mm -hmm. just, you know, going by your stand where you don't want them. And sometimes, yep. and, and I'm sorry, I'm not rambling, I'll let you finish, but like sometimes it's just, uh, it might be a bad setup of where your stand is in relation where the deer are coming from to get to your destination food source, assuming there's destination food source, or other times you, you just create something in that perfect, but like that, 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 that good access trail for the hunter, you've given a really good trail for the deer, which they're, you know, like you, as, as I'm sure, as I know, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're smart, you know, and they'll, yep. they'll, take, they'll take the passive path of least resistance. Yeah. So you, you have a couple of options and circumstances like that. You can either, like, if you have access to that forester motor still cut another trail and add some obstacles to the one you're going to use, you know, mulch something else into there. Um, putting a few trees down. I, I've seen where deer will just walk around um, and go to, you know, hop back on the trail, but do enough <laughs> yeah. of it, make, uh, make it a problem for them. Or the, the alternative would be, you know, during the off season, use that trail use it frequently use it a lot you know mm -hmm. leave, leave a scent present there during the off season the more you're using that trail i don't know walk your dog on it for instance during the summertime every now and then if you can leave a little bit of scent there um that's one deterrent you can use from getting deer to use it but again the the preferred method would probably be either either put some obstacles in the way or, or give them a, an alternative route, or you pick a new route to get into the stand. Maybe you gave them the perfect highway. Maybe you move your stand to your previous, <laughs> you know, entry point. It's it, just don't over, overthink it. I think is the, is the moral of the story there. Um, Cause you're yeah. right. Most often deer and us, we're both going to fight over the path of least resistance to get to, to plan B to get to that food plot. So it might be a little bit bigger of a headache for you to like walk up the Creek and then come in on the other side of the food plot. But um, if it's a difference between, you know, educating those deer to you being in the stand and not, or jumping a deer off of it, then, then it's worth a little bit of, you know, dress accordingly where you layer so you can, you can cut peel them off and put them back on because you have to walk a little further i like that that that's a real good idea yeah sometimes and, and i'm i'm guilty of it you you're a hunter can you know they 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 go to great lengths try to set up a, a stand and everything and and you know um you know visualize it and they're you know, trying to get a, a deer to, you know, show up in any particular place, kind of not do what the hunter wants to do, but, you know, you're designing a setup and they really want, you know, this, this particular set to work, but sometimes when you start hunting it, the deer start using, or rather you're witnessing, you're watching how the deer utilize or wildlife. It could be turkeys that, you know, screw it up, but you, you witness the wildlife use it through trail cameras or, or on the stand. And then you realize, well, shoot, they're, you know, using a different way. Maybe I, as a hunter, like, 
like what you said, you know, and maybe need to re- rethink, move the stand because, you know, especially, you know, if, if, if you're trying to draw in a deer, you know, uh, I mean, a highly intelligent prey species that has been passing, passing down these instinct, the, these genetics of, of staying alive for millions of years. It's like, you know, they're, they're, they're not, I mean, you know, you can outsmart them, but if you're not careful, they're going to outsmart you. So sometimes mm-hmm. you just gotta, I'm guilty of all the time. You know, you set, you set something up, but then it's like, there's very well could be an adjustment that's needed during the season after yep. the first couple hunts potentially especially i mean i see it all the time um where you know we are in you know my area south carolina georgia you see alabama too where it's, it's a lot of pine country so it's a lot of pine plantations different age class pine trees where so there's not sometimes as much open land and so deer can mm-hmm. be any which way i mean they they can bed all over the place especially during the deer season when they're you know maybe during the rut they're moving a lot more the bedding random places and you know you, you can try to set things up but you got to be able to make adjustments on the fly you know and um yeah and so it's that, that might be like anytime i got a new spot where i think a, a stand is going to be good a new a new setup prep two areas you know put the stand in one but have another area prepped and ready to go you know whether that's for a different entry approach or for for a different wind um it especially now like with the options of saddle hunting and like the opportunities are endless to to get yourself in a position to shoot a deer and i'm not saying everybody needs to go out there and purchase a tree saddle but at the very least you can put a little pop-up blind on the other side of the blind where you can access from from an opposite direction or just just kind of prepare um and and try to try to think it through don't don't be married to an idea just because it didn't work that first season you put something in doesn't mean it's it's a bad idea you know it it just means it needs to be tweaked you need to sit down and and figure out what's going on why are the deer utilizing it that way why are they approaching it from that side where are they coming from where are they going when they leave you know get all these pieces together and and sit down and have have some have one of your buddies out at the farm look at the same look at the same issue you're having have a different set of eyeballs on it you know spitball those ideas and and figure out the best plan from that point forward you know i think so many people just get get married to the idea of creating that perfect setup and quite honestly none of these setups are ever going to be perfect you can always do something to improve your success as a hunter or so uh just just be aware of it and maybe if if you don't have any options to keep those deer from using the same access trail practice good scent control wear your rubber boots you know there's just rubber boots can can cover your your rear end <laughs> very often don't don't be touching every tree branch you walk past you know don't be climbing through the briars that's the kind of stuff that's going to leave your scent behind so just being cognizant yeah. with each step that you take you know it, you, you can make things work and if it doesn't work scrap it and try somewhere else <laughs> absolutely yeah you you hit on a number of good things there one of them was um you know, if, if something's not working, um, like what you said, you know, ask the question, you know, why I, I, we've had some spots at our farm, uh, food plots, fields that on paper, when you look at an aerial map, it's like, this has the terrain features around it. Like the, you would think that that particular spot would be one of the, one of the best ones, the farm, 
but it's not, you know, it's underproducing. Maybe we haven't killed a deer there in a couple of years. Well, why not? You know, what's going on? Why, why there's clearly, if people aren't asking questions, why, um, you know, during the hunting season, I, I think that's where they go wrong. You know, why did they miss a deer? Why didn't they see one? You know, why, if they're hunting during velvet season or the pre-rut or rut, you always ask that question, why, you know, cause that, that's, um, I think they can help people really kind of try to figure out, you know, the real reason as opposed to, you know, blaming it on everything else. You know, there's too many coyotes. Blaming the coyotes, coyotes, yeah. <laughs> the coyotes killed all the deer or it's the wrong moon phase, the barometric pressure of this and that. And it's like, you know, and that's why like, I know sometimes like on social media, I'll, I'll, you know, uh, jest a lot about all that kind of stuff and i'm joking but um i do feel like people you know those are sometimes i feel like people don't realize they're making excuses you know mm -hmm. uh, it was the weather whatever but but it's like well maybe you know i mean i i mean there's times where like it might be dur during the rut at our property but we're just not seeing many bucks well what's going on you know like we're we're in the wrong spots you know we're, mm -hmm. we're not Maybe this spot's been burned out. We 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 should have been rotating more. We should have been hunting more mobily. There, there's always there's always something definitely to work on. Um well like I'm I'm thinking of my property and, and this year there's there wasn't a bean left on any of my soybean fields by the end of December. You know, last year we had so much volunteer soybeans popping up in my field. Really? It was it was unbelievable. Huh. And I'm trying to think of what the difference was between last. I mean, yeah, we got a little bit more snow up to this point last year. And yeah, we, I didn't fertilize my fields this year. And so there probably wasn't as many beans out there and, you know, but it's, I'm asking the question, you know, what's, what's going on on my farm where, where they picked yeah. the plate clean this year and not, not last year. Is it a deer number thing? You know, did I not harvest enough does over the last two years? And, and that's the problem. You know, there's, there's, there's a reason for everything and it might not always be the most apparent thing. It might be something as simple as we didn't get as much rain as we normally do during the, during the late summer this year, when, yeah. when my forage soybeans were still producing, you know, it could be something as simple as that, or it could be something as major as I got too many deer on my property. I need to make an adjustment. There's, it's always good to ask those questions. Um, and if you don't have an answer, that's, that's when you reach out, you know, there, there's, I, I know I make myself as, as much as I, I try not to work for free in my life. My favorite thing to do is talk about deer, you know, reach out to me on social media. <laughs> you got a question, something going on. Yeah. And I, I, I like that. Cause if you're having an issue, somebody else is too, you know, it, it, it's a common problem and, and just being a good woodsman and being observant of what's going on and you're right asking those questions of why you might not always get an answer but it's getting your, getting your head in the right spot at the very least that's right that's right it's getting you in the mindset like you said uh to be able to you know understand what what's going on and uh you know try to try to figure it out um let's talk about your 22 season you started off with a with a bang, or rather, I guess it wasn't a bang. It was a silent arrow. It was a thunk. Yeah. That was a pretty awesome yeah. a buck that, that you put down. Thank you. It was, it was my biggest archery buck to date. Um, nice. He, Congrats. Yeah, he's, thank you. It was, it was the it was our number one target buck on the farm. And there's a there's a part of the farm where he was 
fairly frequent. We were getting them on most mornings. And it's funny, mm-hmm. it was kind of a late, late riser, or at least late to get to that particular part of the farm. But every morning between 8.30 and 9 o'clock in the morning, he was showing up behind this old homestead on the property. Really? And yeah, and I just, I caught onto that pattern. And, you know, I, I knew if I waited him out, and I don't think I shot him until 9.30 or 10 o'clock in the morning that day. And it was, really? it was yeah, I was sweating. <laughs> it was bad. But this this particular deer, I almost almost didn't even get an arrow in him. He walked out and I was watching him for a while. And um, he he was nervous. I had about 20 turkey in front of me when he came out. And <laughs> when I picked up my bow, I had two turkeys staring at me and Bender. The deer's name was Bender. Bender staring at me and you know, something just didn't feel right. And he, he started to walk off and he, he got about 32, 33 yards away. And he, he questioned himself and he stopped and he turned to look back towards the blind. And, uh, I put an arrow at him quarter two and he didn't, he didn't make it 40 yards. And it was, it was special. I, I was really hoping my dad could be there with me for that one on the farm. He left the day before I ended up taking the deer. Um, but it was, it was a great experience. Again, we were talking about setting up your farm in an area where you do get that predictable deer movement and in making those adjustments as you go. And one of the major things I've done the last couple of years is by that old homestead, I've been opening up the canopy and getting more sunlight mm. in there. And I mean, I tried my best to get a, to get a food plot in that little hidey behind the homestead this year but it was just so dry this fall nothing came in you know so i got some smart weed and stuff coming in there now but there's there's no good reason for that deer being there other than he had to walk around the homestead and wherever he was going to bed was past past that site so taking advantage of it you know doing my intel doing my homework and put myself in a good position when the wind is right there's the first three mornings i couldn't hunt that spot because the wind wasn't right and I didn't want to blow it. And I saw that deer back there, you know, um, but I didn't want to make a move and, and disrupt my chance. Now to last year, I had a similar situation with the much bigger deer that I was after. And, uh, you know, I wasn't as aggressive and I was kind of sitting on my laurels and, and didn't want to, didn't want to scare that deer off the property. The neighbor ended up shooting them. So there's, it, it goes both ways. It's a fine line. And I just, I, I tell guys just just follow your gut if you if you're feeling good about it you know confidence will translate into success yeah i like that um especially like in the early season uh it it um they're a little more predictable they're not it's, it's by no means easy at all it's just a little more predictable maybe i don't really like that word i mean it's if you know your land and you know how the deer utilize your land or, you know, when I say land, I mean, it's even like knowing your neighbor's land, not that you, you know, trespassing mm-hmm. neighbors, but just, you know, I mean, shoot, everyone's got aerial, everyone's got aerial maps in their pocket on their phone. So, I right. mean, you know, you should be able to like, you know, understand your land, the neighbors. And um, it's just, there's just, to, for me at least, that's one of the coolest experiences. And for me, in the woods is that when you you know, have a plan for a buck um, and it might not even be like a particular buck, but just seeing a buck in any, any given part of the year. And like, it's, you know, you just didn't put a corn pile out. Like, you know, you, you've got a plan, you know, you, you, you know, they bed here and they're doing here and then you, and then you see, and they see a buck, especially if it's, I mean, even if it's one that you don't have history on, it's just something, um, 
it it still fires me up. I mean, I, I still this day, like when it happens, I'm still surprised. Like, oh, it's it's happened. Here, here you it know. worked. Yeah, that's <laughs> something right. I did worked. Because <laughs> yeah. there's so many times, you know, where it doesn't work. You know, it just, mm-hmm. you know, you you see does or you see, you know, it just doesn't work. And um, man, like if we could just know, I mean, wouldn't that be cool to know that like all the times it didn't work, maybe like how close you were. You know, like yeah. it, it, it didn't work because you just didn't see a buck, you know, but what, like, what if you could know that there was one 200 yards from you just cross mm-hmm. out of style, you, you know, they're just, maybe they've patterned you already, or they just, you're just off a little bit. I, that's what I would think probably get people kind of more in tuned, uh, knowing that like they're all around us. And that took me a while to, it took me you know, many years of having our farm and kind of realize that, you know, you, you spook a buck, the neighbor does, the neighbor's running dogs or whatever, but like the deer aren't leaving, you know, the, yeah. the meat area, they might hunker down for a day or so, right? They might change their pounds a little bit for a short period of time, but, but they're all around us. And that, that's like the, that's what's just so cool is like, they're all around us, you know, like, yeah. I, I mean, I, that was, uh, it, I mean, I wouldn't have sat, this past week in coon hunting because i it's just like I, i'm sure everyone's seen videos of people coon hunting at night like you can get right on top of them or or, or people have probably have done it like uh you know tracking deer at night blood trails mm-hmm. you can get right on top of deer bedded down it's just the wildest thing but they're all around us mm-hmm. yeah just, they're not used to getting pressured at night <laughs> yeah can, they see yeah. those headlights they assume it's just a an SUV coming towards them or something. And yeah, you, you're so right. If if I could, like, as soon as you harvest a deer, if you could download the data and see that cat and mouse game <laughs> yeah, of how close you were or what he was thinking, it's, it, it's fascinating. That's one of the, the good things that I've been seeing. One of the good sides of social media here lately has been some of these universities really utilizing oh, yeah. um, the their data, you know, they're putting it in a presentable way. And, and I applaud like, um, I'm sure we're going to miss some people, but I, I know Mississippi state puts stuff out all the time. Deer lab there's, they're putting up these graphics and statistics. And a lot of times they'll put up like caller data. Like I, I follow the migration initiative out West mm-hmm. and they were always putting up cool stuff about the, the mule deer migration and antelope migration. And it's just watching those, those deer patterns. Like even if it's a mule deer, we're not hunting mule deer on the East coast, but even if you're watching how a a mule deer is utilizing that landscape, you'll start to pick up on things, you know, from a landscape scale, when you're watching that, that, that deer come around the South side of the bitter roots, you know, he's, or she's hugging that hillside. She's staying at the same topography all the way around, you know, she's, she's finding those saddles and it's just reaffirming what we already know as, as far as, as deer movement goes, but getting it in front of you in a nice digestible format on your, on your social media feed has just been really incredible. And I think there's so much disconnect between the science happening and the practice the more of that kind of stuff we can get out there and get people to fully invest in it. I, I think we're better off as a outdoorsman across the country. Oh, I absolutely. I mean, you know, he, hearing you talk about those, um, you know, an, you know, animated graphs from like the GPS collar movement. I mean, I, I always think about how, um, you know, um, a lot of people run survey cameras. They might run, you know, trail camera surveys in the summer, early fall, get it, get inventory in their bucks, um, maybe see how many does they have, stuff like that. Well, 
you know, all that's going to change so quickly. I mean, you look at some of those uh, graphics. I know MSU put has put some out in the past, Mississippi State, um, about, you know, Bucks, you know, preseason. Still mm-hmm. in that, you know, you know, velvet before testosterone and then how they shift. And then they might be all around one property. And then the velvet pills, testosterone flares, they break out the bachelor groups. And then one buck might be on the neighbor's property for most, for most the rest of the year. And so it's just, uh, it, it's kind of understanding this and that stuff that you, you might get a, a buck during the summer that you're just not going to see, you know, mm-hmm. um, he, he's just going to be a little bit off the property. Um, but yeah, all that's, uh, all that stuff is some, just some fun stuff just to, you know, plan people, out. People forget that they're, they're individuals. You know, right. they all have tendencies. They all have different tendencies. They have different lifestyles. They're just like people, you know, some of them are homebodies. Some of them have a couple different home ranges. Some of them have a vacation home in the next county over, you know, it's <laughs> like, we just, I think people lose sight of that and, and they want to categorize everything a deer's doing you know, right. so frequently. And at the end of the day, you know, each deer is an individual and he's, they're making conscious decisions on, on how they behave. And you might have to adjust your hunting strategy accordingly. The the deer I was after last year was, he wasn't much of a fighter. He wasn't very aggressive. He was very passive. Anytime I'd seen him, you know, and he wasn't a deer I was going to be able to rattle in. I got other deer on the property, you know, where you can hit a rattle any time of year and he'll show up. They're just, they're just more aggressive. So being able to understand that when you start targeting those individual bucks, being able to pick up on those frequencies and kind of understanding their behavior patterns can, can really help you as a hunter, you know, is he shy? Maybe, maybe you give your, uh, your brother a set of rattling antlers to go to the other side of the property and and scare that shy buck towards you. I don't know, you know, just get creative. (laughs) Yeah. I just, you know, it, it, um, you're right. It it just all all that stuff just kind of help you be a better hunter, um, or, or just for people just to understand reality. And as you know, if you had a buck, you know that you get on camera watching it develop in June and July, then August and all of a sudden it disappears. Well, I mean, you can hunt him, but if he's not there, if he's not there. He's not there. So I mean, there's been times years past where I've have been hunting a buck. You know, I've never seen him. I I don't know if he's alive. I don't know if he's just off the property. That's, you know, if he was summering on our property and moved on. But that's why uh, if I see another buck, I'm going to shoot. I'm not going to pull them eggs in one basket just because it's not, you know, we don't have that kind of land where it's just thousands of acres where, you know, it's our own deer for the most part. And, you know, you can see, I mean, it's, we have a lot of pressure around us. So um, let's talk about turkey hunting. I know you, I know you turkey hunt some. Or a lot. I know you. Yeah, I I love it. I've seen some photos. So what what does your turkey season look like? And do you have a lot? Do you work a lot as far as helping clients for turkeys? Are are they? I'll tell you what, this consulting thing really gets in the way of my turkey hunting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe, maybe you need to start working out a a deal where you, you know, you can, you can turkey hunt on their client's property and you yeah, I get to show up a day early <laughs> yeah maybe give them a couple of, a couple extra hours or something you can hunt yeah so 
my turkey season the last couple of years have been kind of busy traveling this year i've really kind of made a made a conscious effort mm -hmm. to set aside some time just because i do enjoy it so much and quite honestly it's it's one of the best time of year like if, if you're not much of a shed hunter and i i get it it's not for everybody and i really like splitting on 10 miles a day to find a, a dinky little fork you know <laughs> or nothing at all um not for everybody i love shed hunting but the next best thing is get out there during turkey season you know yeah. the, the sign isn't as fresh but you'll be able to pick up like you can still tell where there was a, a, a scrape that you might not have known about earlier in the year and you can still kind of see where some consistent bedding has been taking place and get out there and really use those turkey hunts as a chance to inventory your property for deer season um yeah. take a pair take some flagging ribbon out there with you as your turkey hunt you might see something mark it while you're out oh, there. yeah um i always have that stuff in my pack and but make sure you take a note use your onyx or whatever app you're using if you put that flagging ribbon up there you know mark it in your phone and make a note what that flagging ribbon's for whether it's a you know you want to take that tree out or you don't want anybody to touch that tree or whatever it may be um but yeah this year i've, I've really been making an effort where like so i i got a consult in in may and i'm gonna be heading out east so like I worked out where I'm going to meet my brother and a former uh, boss of mine uh, in West Virginia, and I'm going to do a couple day uh, backcountry turkey hunt out there. So that'll nice. be fun. I'm, I'm hosting quite a few. I think we have four or five people coming out to the farm this year. I'm hoping to put a, a hurt on some of these jakes we have running around. We get, our crazy our turkey population has been absolutely bonkers this season. The recruitment was phenomenal and I, I i can't take credit for it i wish i could take full credit for how well our turkeys are doing but most hens i've been seeing walking around still have at least four or five poults with them it's it's truly wow, that's and, awesome yeah it's it, it's been a really special year so like sharing the bounty you know like I'm, I'm inviting as many people as i can down to the farm while, while we're having good years um and it's it's uh I love it, man. There's just something about everything greening up and, you know, like picking a tick off of your leg or taking a nap under the tree, <laughs> you know, the sun's hitting you just right. Yeah. And I, uh, it's, it's great. It's, it's the first true sign of spring. You hear those gobblers ripping off and it's, it's been really, it's been fun to get my dad engaged with it too. He, he grew up hunting out West hunting coos deer and, uh, mule deer out in southern arizona and so turkey they didn't have turkey around back then so getting him out here now that we got a farm and kind of getting him squared away and yeah he's got he's got his tactics i got mine the uh it's it it's interesting there's, there's a million ways to kill a turkey um and there's two million ways not to kill a turkey so <laughs> well you should take credit for it you you you, you okay, should i take I take I take a little bit of credit. <laughs> you should. I, I, I'm sure you have a lot. I'm sure you have something to do with it. With that being said, what do you think? I mean, I I I, I got to tell you. I mean, I you know I don't I don't talk to every person you know that has land about the turkeys. Um, I it comes up a lot. But so uh, you have my curiosity now. What do you think was something different? Um, over the past year or two of of why there's more more pulse on the ground so one of the big things i've been doing is creating more uh early successional buffer strips between my food plots and the wood lots and as far as pulse survival goes i think that the sooner they can get to some sort of cover the better so um 
what I ended up doing was I dropped a couple of trees down. I planted warm season grasses along one of our major destination food sources, mm-hmm. um, dropped a few trees down into a 15 foot wide swath. So I wouldn't be tempted to get the tractor back there and mow it down, you know? Um, so given that escape cover to them, um, something I'm often telling clients is everyone like planting wood rows and logging roads like especially you're somewhere like my minnesota guys like that's a great place for them to plant in most circumstances because yeah. it's already built up and everything but the the flip side of it is you know line of sight is something they got to keep in mind so don't plant long straightaways you know if you got a bend in the road that'd be a good area to plant if you got a couple bends in the road even better um, but just being aware of, of that escape cover, cover and line of sight for the predators, I think goes a long ways. Um, bugging grounds. That's, that's one of the things where, mm-hmm. so we, we burned, we burned last year, um, on most of our native prairie stuff. And I just think the, uh, after it greened up and those pulp started hitting ground, they had freedom to move about underneath all that. It was mostly ragweed and a uh, big blue stem coming back in a lot of those areas. And it just gave them the, the perfect cover for them to be able to navigate around it. And another habitat trick that I, that I strongly encourage, I, I was meant to bring it up earlier. If you have the area to be able to experiment this, I strongly encourage it. So if you got some standing corn still out there, I don't care if there's any ears of corn on it or not. If you still have that structure out there, leave it alone. Leave it standing for the whole year. You're going to be hard pressed to find an area where you're going to get better bugging habitat for poults than you will in a fallow cornfield. You know, the ground's Mm. already opened up. I'm assuming you were you're managing it probably roundup ready corn you have those rows in there they're sheltered from above all that native vegetation is going to start making a living down there those bugs are going to be attracted to it but just fallow cornfields man if you have the real estate to be able to experiment work that into if you're doing a corn soybean rotation you know leave part of that corn standing for a year and just rotate it around you know we're we're planting sections leave it um my issue is i wish i wish it was more long-term the the Johnson grass does like those areas uh, in the fallow cornfield. So it, it's kind of hard to get out there and, and manage that uh, after the fact. But for what it is, you know, that that, that structure you get from those fallow cornfields, I, I think is great. And there probably still is some corn falling off of those ears in, in those fields. So stuff like that, I, I, I think adds up over time. You know, we haven't been, we haven't been trapping those meso predators on our property because i haven't really seen a need to yet mm-hmm. you know i'm, I'm not going to go out there and invest all this time in traps until i until i see a very real if if we don't have any turkey poults next summer you know something gets wiped out yeah i'm gonna i'm open to the idea of, of encouraging some of these these other techniques to, to be able to mitigate that but for the time being you know just the i think the escape cover and the bugging grounds and, and suitable nesting habitat you know it, it's all it boils down to habitat and I, so yeah I, I can take some credit for some of that kind of stuff but what i can't take credit for is is the spring last uh, the weather last year during the springtime and uh, we didn't you know we had some some nice soaking rains we didn't have yeah. any super differential downpours i think that has a lot to do with it um yeah it was, it was just for whatever reason a dino i'm really really looking forward to the spring on my place when did what's the tennessee turkey season look like when does it start so tennessee bumped its season back two weeks this year they used to start at the beginning of april um they bumped it back two weeks and they took a bird away in tennessee so 
Uh, before anybody gets up in arms about that, uh, I fully support those management decisions. I think turkeys are yeah. one of those things where state agencies wait too long to make adjustments to it. Um, people are going to complain that everything's starting to green up. You're not going to be able to see as well. The, the turkeys might be behaving a little different, but you know, at the end of the day, we're looking at the longevity of the resource. So if we can wait till things green up a little bit, you know, more than anything, I think you're not bumping those hens off their nests as frequently because now you have, you have some vegetation and obstruction between you, you and that hen. She can't see you from a hundred yards away and, and take flight. Um, so yeah, Tennessee opens up second week, uh, the 15th of April, and Tennessee runs all the way through the 28th of May. Um, Kentucky ends, I think it's the 7th of, 7th of May. Kentucky's a little bit a little bit shorter season. So I'm looking forward. I'm hoping I can get a West Virginia bird, a Tennessee bird, and a, and a couple at the farm in Kentucky this year. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, I – We've been seeing that. I, I when you were saying the season changed and they pushed it back and you have one less bird. I first my first thought was good, you know, <laughs> good, you know, just because I, you know, a lot of states need to do that, especially states that have the our our turkey, the 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 eastern wild turkey. Yeah, it's you know, um, I love turkey season. I, I like turkey hunting. I, I'm I'm not as I'm more of a white tail guy. I do love turkeys. Don't get me wrong, but I, I think I enjoy. It's kind of like quail. I love quail hunting, but I enjoy the habitat side and trying to figure out, trying to just figure out that puzzle of the wild turkey and the poults and just growing. I'd, I'd rather work on that side. And I like hunting, but I, but I'm also not a very great caller. I'm a, I'm I've been effective at times, but I I, I by no means I don't claim to. I can't talk to a turkey as far as you mm-hmm. know, listening to them, understanding like what they're saying, their mood and all that. I, I, that's just not, um, that's, I, you know, I don't have that ability. Um, it's awesome going with somebody that knows where they're doing. They can talk to them. It's incredible. Oh, it's incredible. I, yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> this, uh, my old manager I was talking about that I'm working with, he worked for NWTF for a while. He was a wildlife nice. manager on the WMA down in Southern West Virginia. And he, he just took a new job with the forest service, but he's kind of the one that took me under his wing early on mm-hmm. and started teaching me the ropes with, uh, with Turkey hunting. And in one, one technique that I had a conversation, I just wrote an article for game and fish that'll be coming out um, this spring talking about kind of my tactics with Turkey hunting, but for the longest time, I was always walking because I like being mobile. I like being on my feet. Like I was saying earlier, I like seeing all the tadpoles in the puddles. And just, yeah. I enjoy that aspect of, you know, being rewarded for putting in this work in the morning. Um, but I was always walking a loop. I'd, I'd, I would leave either the house or the truck or whatever, and I'd walk a big loop and I'd be calling. And, and if I was hearing hearing a response you know i had to hunker down or whatever and if bird doesn't come i keep going and i was time after time i was finishing my loop and i was empty-handed and it wasn't until i had a conversation with with travis my buddy and started talking to him about it he's like why are you taking a different walk back to your truck like what do you mean he goes i bet you any money those birds are showing up on that trail after you continue on your course and sure enough two years ago i started doing a little different i started walking an out and back instead of a loop 
And it, it's amazing, you know, around lunchtime, you get up on those ridge tops and you're working your way back in the area. You, you already covered where you swear there was no birds and they just start showing up. So if I, I can give any mobile turkey hunter a word of advice, it'd be, you know, keep track of your, your movement and don't do a loop with your, with your, your travel pattern, you know, doing, doing out and back. You'll, you'll really be surprised at the amount of birds that, that you just miss that, that turn quiet, you know, at that point in the day. And you might, you might pique their interest as you're calling, walking, walking that ridge top or whatever, but they might not give a response. So give yourself a second chance going on the way back and, and hopefully uh, you'll be rewarded. That makes sense. I, I've often wondered the, the hunters that are more of like more of the run and gun, you know, they're, they're just going to kind of walk call. If nothing responds immediately, they're going on the next spot calling that. I mean, at a certain point, does that become, could it become detrimental where you're just continuously mm-hmm. calling new sites? There's birds out there with an earshot. They can hear it. They're either going to respond or not. They're going to come in or they're not, but you're just, I mean, I, I would think that would be detrimental. You just consistently call as opposed to just post up. And I know people don't want mm-hmm. to do that because they want that instant gratification of call gobble. There he is. Let's go after him or, or let's sit tight, whatever it is. But at a certain point, I mean, it would be like if you were, it's not the same at all, but I mean, if someone was going to rattle for a buck during the rut or around the rut, walking around the property, rattling, different sites mm-hmm. where you're rattling any one given buck and potentially hear you rattle from multiple different sites. Probably is not the best. Now I realize right. turkeys are completely different and I'm not a turkey guy, or at least I'm, I'm not very skilled at it. I've wondered that, um, you know, at a yeah. certain point, did, did that become detrimental? That, that I, like, yeah, you, I would imagine, I would imagine it does. And, and the way that kind of, try to combat that with with my mobile turkey hunting approach if you want to call it that um so i I spent a lot of time up on ridge tops and Mm -hmm. what i'm doing is anytime i get to a bend in the logging road or or turn in the in the topography or anytime i'm about to round the corner in the road you know i'm letting out some soft some softer softer calls you know just a visibility thing i want to make sure there's not a bird directly around the corner or you know up on the ridge top before i expose myself so i'm doing some optical calls there but then you get out to those points where you can cover a lot of ground with your call you know let it rip see what's out there off of those off of those major points um in the turkey they're they're remarkably good at knowing where that sound came from so yeah it's being patient in me i i always i'd say at least more than half of the days I go turkey hunting, I ended up taking a little snooze somewhere mid morning. Oh, yeah. And part yeah. of the reason is because I'm trying to slow myself down, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just kind of chill out, let the site breathe. Um, I mean, I do the same thing, you know, I have a similar thought process. If I'm calling for turkeys and I, I, I don't hear anything, you know, you just, at least for me, my confidence goes down to thinking like, did I just screw something up? Did I burn a spot? Same thing happens when you rattle or like when I rattle, if, if I were to mm-hmm. rattle and you don't hear anything, you're like, would I have messed something up? But, but you got to sit tight. You got to plan. I mean, if, you, if you're going to commit to doing it, you got to do it the right way. Do your, you know, sequence calling sequence and just sit tight. What, what's your thoughts on decoys for turkeys? 
Do you like them? Uh, Use them? Yeah, I, I usually I usually carry one around. It's usually a Jake. Um, mm-hmm. my, it's funny because my dad's very much uh, he turkey hunts like he deer hunts. And on our farm, there's two or three spots where you can you can sit there, and if you sit there until two o'clock, you're you're gonna shoot a bird probably. You know, they just they always wander over that clover patch or that pinch point. And there's a couple spots on the farm like that. Um, you might have so some he, friends uh, wanting to sit on that on that on that clover plot now. Now yeah, that you've given yeah. the secret out at two o'clock. Yeah, you you sit there long enough. Yeah, it's <laughs> usually uh, right after lunchtime they'll come cruising through yeah. there. But um, yeah, if I'm in a situation like that, then I'll go ahead and, and take some more decoys out with me. If I'm sitting with my dad or something, we'll get it out there. We'll make it look like it's a little party going on. But for the most part, when when I'm walking around, it's it's just one more thing to carry, yeah. and it 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 gets kind of annoying i think more than anything i feel like it doesn't give me much because oftentimes when i'm walking like that i don't have good visibility you know like unless mm-hmm. i'm coming up to a field edge or something I, putting that turkey out on a logging road isn't gonna isn't gonna do much for me so um i i, I enjoy them i i have a turkey fan i've never used it and i'm quite honestly even though i'm hunting private ground i'm hesitant to use that um but yeah they're great i the thing i don't understand is we don't fully comprehend how a turkey sees so whether you're talking about camo patterns or decoys um what are you really putting out there you know how is the ink in that paint how's that perceived by the turkey right does it matter i don't know (laughs) you know maybe it does i've heard of guys going as far as you know super glue and feathers to a decoy and doing stuff like that to to try to get an edge and hey more power to you if you if you got the time the patience to do something like that but the way i treat my decoys if i glued feathers to them you know then be it'd be nothing left by the time i got back from my morning hunt (laughs) yeah yeah it's those little things i i I'm like you I often think about like my, I've got some turkey decoys and, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't ride with them in the back of my truck, you know, exposed. I, I don't want them to fade. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, it's like, I know with, you know, deer vision, they can, you know, pick up and see UV light camo can fade. They can see that, you know, fading in the material can really pop. Um, but as far as turkeys, I, yeah, all, all that little stuff just kind of gets, just you know, this is kind of fun stuff to worry about out out there hunting. Um, so what's your what's your summers usually look like? I mean, there's, there's not uh, much. A lot, a lot I mean, of consulting, a lot yeah. of travel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I'm booked up through. I'm into June now, as far as consulting goes, and. Um, one of the things I've really been trying to do and push hard is start building my, my client base here closer to home where I'm not mm-hmm. taking quite such drastic trips all the time. Um, and it's starting to pay off. That's part of the reason I moved to the Nashville area. Um, I thought I could stay fairly busy around here and, and starting to take hold, you know, getting more and more referrals locally. Um, so awesome. hopefully, hopefully not as much airfare. I'm trying to, I don't know how many times I've had COVID now, <laughs> I think three, <laughs> uh, but try to stay out of the airports as much as possible. Oh, yeah. um, and then, you know, the habitat stuff, that's always, it's, I look forward to that more than anything, you know, planting weekend. It, it can be stressful. You know, I, 
as much as I'd love to have a no-till drill and be able to go out there and plant when, when conditions are right, I'm kind of at the mercy of, you know, what's, what's the weather doing? You know, I can only prep a field so much. If, if I got it all dissed up and tilled and I get a, a freak rainstorm, which happens in Southern Kentucky quite frequently, I might be stuck waiting a day or two before I can get my, my planter in there yeah. and get anything in the ground. So just trying to be as prepared as possible. Um, like earlier, you're talking about some, some winter habitat projects and stuff that's uh fire breaks you know putting those in ahead of time it's just having a little bit of foresight no matter what you're you're working on you know think about what you're going to be doing down the road and, and, yeah. and prep for it you know that's right yeah we were um i was mostly just i was just doing chainsaw i was just running chainsaws this past weekend in between coon hunting but uh we're we're actually doing uh repairing we've got some much needed repairs on the tractors right now we're trying to get this squared away so we can start burning cutting fire breaks pretty soon getting all that ready and teed up so we don't miss that window and then pretty soon it's gonna be time to start getting ready for food plots we've already done some soil soil samples what um when you're advising on seed and warm cool season food plots perennials annuals mm-hmm. you have some favorites you like or you know some different maybe a mixture or anything but in particular you like to um you just like the results or maybe it's a combination of you know like i said a mixture maybe you've got you know a border of you know and a lot of people plant different things for for um for borders i i there was something I was kind of loosely following. Um, and I don't follow Don Higgins. Uh, but he, he and, uh, that guy from native, native hab, habitat project. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. The yeah. the guy that has all his TikTok videos. I think it's a native yep. habitat project. Yeah. That's what it's called. They were, it seemed like they were kind of going back and forth about, um, it's, it was, I, I don't know, it wasn't Egyptian wheat. It was some type of it, like screening cover. Discantis, yeah. Discantis, right. Yeah. And if I have it right, Don Higgins was saying that it's, you know, it's sterile. sterile. And the other guy was saying, well, it's not cool. Here's 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 the problem. So it, yes, it's a hybrid. It's a hybrid between yeah Japanese silvergrass and another discanthus species. The problem you run into, yeah, if you, if you get that in the ground, you plant those rhizomes, and and that's the only thing that's there. You don't got any invasive silvergrass around. You can probably contain it. You know, it's probably not going to spread too far. But I look at my farm and just at the top of the hill from the driveway, there's some silver grass right there. You know, who's to say that doesn't wash into the creek and start to establish down on, on the creek bank right next to the food plot? I want to plant that screening cover. If there's yeah. some silver grass out there, can it back pollinate? I'm fairly certain it probably could. Um, so I think that's kind of where you get into this kind of is it sterile? It, you kind of you know if, if it's alone and you don't kind have to of. worry about it yeah, yeah. and I, I know which side I would I would fall on in that argument but it's one of those things where if you're in an area where you don't have a problem with with silver grass and it, it's not a threat to, to yeah. back pollinate, 
you can go ahead and, you know, try it. And if it doesn't work, you know, get rid of it. But most instances, there's there's always a native option that, that you can get away with yeah. that, that would produce better, better I just, outcome. Yeah, I, I try to, I, I'm just always usually one to, you know, avoid, um, you know, social media type arguments. Although they, they, they were not, I think they were just, I don't know how they connected, but, um, you know, I, I find some of that stuff, not like that particular, but stuff like that funny. Cause you know, like, you know, there's certain, like you and I, before we started recording, we were talking about that, that, uh, coyote graphic, you know, about, you know, it says something like, you know, studies, studies, plural <laughs> show that, you know, female coyotes on average when they're denning kill 19 fawns or whatever it said, well, you know, there's stuff like that that's just false. You know, it's just mm-hmm. there's no studies that show an average. It's false. Um, and there's some things that we know for sure about plants and animals, different things. But the, the other things, like what you said about, you know, like turkey vision. There's a lot mm-hmm. of things about like deer that we just don't really know yet. We we have a lot of good direction as far as whatever might be. We don't we don't know everything. We don't know. But so there's so many different areas where like no one really knows for sure. But there's definitely some ideas that would steer you one way or the other. But sometimes people they just they, they just double down. They just and I'm not saying I uh, one person's right, one person's wrong. I just I'm saying general. I find that sounds kind of funny because you know everyone's got everyone has a platform on social media. But sometimes I mean, like if I don't know something, I'll say I don't know it, or, or if, if it's not black and white. <laughs> You know, people are afraid to say that though. I I, yeah. I notice it a lot, like people around my age, especially it's that a reluctance to admit you're not familiar with the topic. Yeah. You know, somebody would rather have an opinion on something they're uneducated about than be willing to admit that, that, that they're not familiar with it. And I think a lot of that, and here we go getting into the social aspects of society, but I, I think there's something to it where, where people just aren't, I feel like they're losing a little bit of our curiosity. You know, I, I think it's good to question things. You see a statistic, read the article or at least try to figure out where it came from, you know, be open-minded. You don't have to jump yeah. down somebody's throat. They post something or repost something, but at the same time, you know, it, I think it's good that if if you're willing to come forth and, and put something provocative on social media like that, you better be prepared to to back it up somehow, you know, um, oh yeah for sure and it it, it's sad i i i constantly find myself surrounding myself with with other curious people you know it it, it's it's so easy to go through we get so much information thrown at us on a daily basis whether it's it just habitat so like thinking about my social media feed you know right now it's a lot of shed antlers and you know a few turkey pictures and stuff like that but it's it's important to kind of distance yourself from from the posts that aren't you know validated or aren't i don't know people are so charged up emotionally i think they're just looking for an excuse to you know stand on their sideline and and, and cheer on their squad and i don't think there's enough people willing to question their own party you know i question other hunters and my clients all the times on decisions they make and it's not out of disrespect you know it's out of curiosity and and wanting to understand where they're coming from and and i think that's super important in all aspects of life to just be just be open-minded 
Absolutely. That, that's a very smart way of, of looking at things in, a, in a, a very intelligent way of your approach to your business. But yeah, like we have, been, have we, like what we said a couple of times so far is just asking questions. I mean, I, it's one of the reasons why I like doing this podcast. I, I talk to people like yourself. Um, Cause I mean, I, despite what some people might think, I don't, I do not know everything and I don't know everything about hunting. Um, I love hunting and a lot of this kind of stuff and I'm trying to consume as much as I can, but yeah, I don't know everything and not, there's not many people that know, know everything. And it, and it's good to, um, you know, ask questions, get better. Um, it is amazing to me that people will share stuff, post things without fact checking that, or, or they read, yeah. they just read it. It's like, oh, okay, well that's the gospel. And it's like, ah. 19 funds a year. It's a good thing I shot one last year, you know? Yeah, it's just, um, which like, if, if in the day, like, it's not, it's like that graphic. I know a lot of people, it ain't phasing. It's not like it's that earth shattering, but, you know, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, trapping or hunting predators or coyotes, but I just don't, you know, there's so, there's so many things that just give people the wrong ideas that like, that's like, that's, that's the that's the way yeah trap, well, trap, trap, it, as opposed to habitat stuff you know, like that's the yeah. it's like oh well, no one's talking about you know how many you know well can you save 19 fawns if you were to you know create better bedding or whatever like you're not seeing those kind of graphics and so it's and plus hunting's a lot of people enjoy doing it people like calling yeah. up counties and shooting them so you're you know so i that's what i worry about is just i mean there's so much disinformation I mean, so I'm sorry, so much, excuse me, misinformation out there, but that that's across the board with everything in life. I mean, uh, no matter what yeah, you're looking at, there's all these kinds of false stuff. Well, um, we've been, as a, as a country, we've been demonizing the coyote since the 1800s, you know, yeah. ever since we started trying to cut livestock loose on the landscape. It's, it's been an easy target. And it's, uh, they're really, they're, they're fascinating animals. I love them and I hunt, I'll shoot them. You know, <laughs> I don't always, I don't shoot every coyote that walks in front of me in the tree stand, but I have no problem doing it. And I have no issue with yeah. anybody going out and trapping and shooting. If you enjoy it, man, have at it, but don't just don't fool yourself into thinking you're saving 19 fawns with every coyote you kill. I think that's where the problem lies. We're demonizing the coyote when we're losing sight of the actual problem, which is, which is habitat loss. And, you know, and a lot of that can boil down to, you know, invasive species encroachment yeah. or mismanagement yeah. of the land. Or there's so many pieces to this puzzle, and and I think just because one of them has has big big shiny white teeth and snarls and might eat a <laughs> fawn or two, it's just an easy target to point your your finger in. That's your right. Gun. You blame it, and it's yeah, it's. I've had the conversation uh, with some people before. I was being interviewed, trying to. I was just trying to do do a little marketing for myself. And I was, I was talking to someone, you know, a, outside of the wildlife business about, you know, conservation, different things. And it's, it, it's, it's, I, I kind of hold back a little bit because I don't want to come across like, you know, a Debbie Downer just so negative, but a lot of what like, you know, I'm not trying to put, I'm not trying to put like words in your mouth. But a lot of like what land wildlife consultants do, wildlife biologists, land managers, land stewards, they're correcting problems, habitat, land problems, you know, that, that, you know, man-made problems. 
mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, bad for, you know, decades or year, decades of bad forestry practices um, or bad farming practices or mismanagement of deer or turkey or quail, you know, bad habitat practices, you know, we're correcting a lot of that. And yep. a lot, and a lot of it really, I mean, a lot of it directly is man-made, man-made issues, but you know, we're, um, you know, that, that's, uh, that's a lot, you know, I, with NDAs, um, I'm sure you saw what their, uh, their annual deer, um, deer I'm drawing blank official name, the, that's right, the annual deer report that came out and, um, the major headline that they were pushing was that, you know, 88%, I think, I think it was 88% of deer, that are harvested or taken on private land across the board, which is really no surprise. I mean, it's not how much of North, how much of our country is private. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Especially when you break out white tailed deer and knowing that of all the hundreds of millions of public land out West, there's not as much white tail hunting as opposed to other hunting elk and mule deer or whatever else. But yeah, it's not a, it's not, should be shocking people like you and me, but when you sort of think about like, if that's really the, the the majority of deer coming from private land, it's like how much of private land, like of the amount of private land that 88% is coming from, how much of it, how much of it is like really good habitat? Not like outstanding, no, but how much, yeah. how much of it is like, I would say sufficient, you know, like really kind of mm-hmm. giving the deer what they need. Yeah. Probably yeah, not. It's not much. And it's funny you say that because two, two summers ago, I, I was fortunate enough to go on a fishing trip in Alaska with my dad. Mm-hmm. And I remember going up there and it was like a float plane deal where we had a lodge and we'd go somewhere and fish every day. So we were in these little planes and you're flying, I don't know, a couple hundred feet above the ground. You're flying with the speed of smell and you looking around, I was just looking out the window and I was just fascinated at how big the country was and the landscape out there. And in the, first thing that I that I took note of was there's no straight lines anywhere out there you know we're flying around and the streams meander you know there's oxbows there's cut banks there's multiple channels no roads there's no telephone lines and it was just really like this neat intricate landscape and when you're flying anywhere on, on the lower 48 you know everything's linear everything's how man designed it and wanted it to be and I, I had this, you know, thought in my head where it's like, yeah, so much of my job is trying to undo bad management practices, trying to undo what we yeah. have caused in the lower 48. And it doesn't matter where you go. You know, we're always trying to undo something we did wrong in the past. Well, up in Alaska, you know, it's a, it's a little bit different. It's more of a preservationist approach. It's like, let's, let's not mess hmm. up what's here. Um, two completely different mindsets, but they all have, you know, it's all the same goal. You know, you want that, you want clean air, you want clean water, you want the resources to be healthy and how you get there, you know, it's people like you and I and my clients and your clients and hunters are the foot soldiers for better conservation in our prop in our country. I, I don't care who, how much somebody donates to the humane society of America or PETA or right. They're not yep. doing anything to perpetuate better, healthier wildlife populations across the country. Um, so it's, I don't know. I, I get so fired up about it where I was having a conversation yesterday with, with a lady and, and she was like, she was like, she thought I was special because I have this, this sentiment 
towards wildlife and I am a hunter and conservation. She thought it was pretty unique, um, my perspective on it. And I had to tell her, you know, I'm not unique. I think that's that's one good trend I do see in a lot of social media and in the hunting circles here is I think hunters as a whole want are trying to be more aware of their impact. You know, anyone can go out there and say hunting is conservation and that thing gets beat to death hearing that. And it is. But I, I think it's the duty of the individual hunter to understand what that means. And you don't have to be an expert in Pittman-Robertson funding. You know, you don't have to know how that money gets allocated or, or where it's coming from, but just be familiar with it where let people know you respect the resource. I think number one, that's most important. People struggle with that. They, they yeah. think you have a vendetta against an animal because you killed it. No, I love the <laughs> I've devoted my entire life to deer. They're fascinating animals, but I don't love that particular deer. You know, it's just getting that point across. And and yeah. I think we as hunters are kind of being, we're, we're becoming more aware. And whether that's less grip and grin, or, and I'm not telling anybody they shouldn't post a grip and grin, but, you know, maybe wipe the blood off of the animal first, you know, try to try to make it as respectful as possible. Maybe add a, add something in the comments where you say, thank you. You know, because that's, I think anyone that harvests an animal has a certain level of gratitude towards it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's definitely to keep, you're, you're right. It's definitely good to keep that, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, as a hunter, you, you need to cater to people that don't like hunting, but like what you said, I mean, social media, you put something out there, it's out there. And, uh, I mean, shoot, man, like every, every quarter of the year, there's, a new bill that's probably not ever going to see the light of day, but there's a new bill that's being proposed to limit or to ban some type of hunting. And, and mm-hmm. it's only a matter of time before one of those shocking bills that you don't think is going to go anywhere that it's going to go somewhere and then it's going to get passed. I mean, it's, it's just a matter of time because there's so it's crazy over the past, like two and a half years, how, how many just popping up out of the woodwork. Um, so I need to plug this in real quick. If you don't yeah. mind, my nope. computer's about to die. Okay. All right. Um, we'll start to wrap this up. I I, I want to ask you a question about, uh, you know, deer, deer herds and deer health. And, um, you know, I was, I, 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 I posed this question. Um, I think, I think, I think in November I, I interviewed, um, Eric and Cody from the, um, deer hunter project mm-hmm. really like those two guys they, they uh put some good stuff and i it what i like about their content is very thought thought provoking they'll they'll pose a real question that you don't really hear too much and they'll talk about it and discuss and sometimes it's not really a definitive yes or no but i was talking to them and i kind of thought about it because you know if you, if you kind of think back about um 
you know, the creation and the, and, and the development of the um, hunting seasons, you know, hunting laws, you know, that, you know, came up from, you know, after the uh, meat market years where a lot of our game was just dwindling down over hunted. Mm -hmm. And then you fast forward to the eighties and then you have that movement, that, that QDM movement, Al brothers, you know, started Texas him and Ray Murphy. And then of course, Joe Hamilton, bringing it to the South, South Carolina and talking with him, um, which I, I will be doing something with him pretty soon, which I'm very excited about, but Man, I tell you, especially if anyone's read his book, Joe Hamilton's Fire Pot Fire Stories. Stories. It's just a really good book that I don't it does not get talked about enough. But man, I, I tell you, like I'm sure you probably read it. I mean, that was an uphill battle. We talk about that movement of the early days of QDMA. You know, it was it, it went through a lot of different names for start finalized. But anyways, the uphill battle of shoot does. Now, of course, yeah. not, not every region, but a lot of the South, a lot of the Southeast, you needed to shoot does because they went the long period where they weren't shooting does for obvious reasons. Fast forward, do you think, now here's my real question after all that rambling, do you think that we'll see some issues or maybe a needed change, not like next year, but just down the road? I mean, if you look back, the late 90s, um, I was finishing up high school so late nineties, early, early two thousands, probably when like the big buck movement really just blew up, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, QDM, shows and- yeah, all those big buck <clears throat> shows and, you know, QDM was kind of out there for anyone to really pay attention to or consume if they wanted to for easily 10 years. Um, I mean, shoot, you start just practicing the fundamentals of QDM for 10 years or five years, and you're going to see some good results. But anyways, fast forward to 2023. Do you, do you think that we'll ever see a period where as a, as a hunting society, we're just probably too focused on bucks, on just big giant bucks? I mean, every magazine you see print, it's it's a 180-inch buck. And if it's not mm-hmm. 180-inch or the new state record, it's not going to be, it's just like, it's what sells, you know? And yeah. I, do, do, do you think, and as opposed to, I'm not, I'm not saying that everyone does this and I'm not saying that I'm better than anyone else, but there's a large contingent of the hunters that they, that they're going after bucks, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe it's because they hunt more public land and I get that, but do, do you think that we're going to see issues with maybe not enough as much does being shot or just that we're drifting into that, like, you know, antlers, it's just all that, yeah. you know, it's, it's all we consume, you know, it's all we're if it's doing. Not, if it's not and, magazine worthy, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and, and, and I, I mean, I joke a lot about gimmicks and stuff like that, hunting apps or whatever else. And I mean, I could be wrong. This is just my opinion, but I do feel like the monetization of hunting has just exploded over the past 20 years, over the past mm-hmm. 10, 15 years with social media, meaning every little thing that a company can monetize to like give you, to like give someone the, just, just uh, one extra edge, you know, one extra mm-hmm. chance of a killing a body, even if it's just fabricated. I mean, even if it's like something you spray on yourself or sin or something, because, yeah. you know, they slapped a buck on the back, a big giant buck. Or a good-looking girl. Or a good-looking girl in a bikini, you know, something like that. <laughs> you, I mean, 
do you feel like in our lifetime that we're going to see um, a, a needed shift in our deer management? Like something something big like what we saw in 1988 when Joe Hamilton started a QDMA where it was like an uphill battle. Do you think we're going to see something like that? I, I don't think we're going to see something like that. I think there's a reason big antler sell. Matter of fact, like looking at my logo here, yep. I, I had a different logo when I started my company. I didn't want anything with an antler on it. Um, but the longer I was in it, you know, the, I just, every, everything has a nailer on it. Yeah. That's, that's what sells. And I think my logo is, it's animated, you know, it's a little different, but that's, that's what always is going to sell. But I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. You know, it, if people are going out and spending Buku's types of money on all these different scents and sprays and, and what have you, um, which I don't quote me on this, but I would assume those products all fall under PR funding. So they are getting a little bit of something as far as uh, giving back to yeah. natural resource management. Yeah. So there's a little bit of product driven there. Um, as far as the dough management and dough harvest and stuff goes, that seems to go it coincides with the age of the client. I don't need a lot of young, my younger clients don't have that mindset where a lot of my older clients, it's a conversation that I always have to have with them about shooting does. Um, yeah. So I think that mindset, we are getting to the point where it's going to start dying out um, as morbid as that may sound. I think the new, new uh, cohorts of hunters kind of have a better grasp on, on the big picture as far as deer management goes, because they're not growing up in an age when deer were scarce. You know, I think that's where most all of yeah. those mindsets come from is people were used to, you know, not having a bunch of deer around. So why on earth would you shoot a female you know look at look at look at turkey season for instance we just don't shoot female turkeys because that's who's giving birth to more turkeys you know <laughs> yeah um but yeah. when you're looking at the deer side of things it's like a lot of circumstances we have an overabundance you don't hear too i've never heard a situation where somebody's got to, other than like down in texas where they're eating all the feed out of the feeders people yeah. getting upset about that you don't hear too many like um deteriorating effects from having too many turkeys on the landscape it's not the same with deer we are having some very real effects whether that be cwd yeah. or EAD or disease or whatever you know whether we are having problems that are in regeneration you know native plant regeneration we're having issues there you know the reason a lot of these non-natives take such a strong hold is because they're not highly desirable by deer the deer aren't browsing they're turning to our native stuff they're used to eating mm -hmm. um but I, I I do think that we're kind of phasing out of that mindset of, oh, well, you can't shoot a doe. That's where all your big bucks come from. Um, yeah. The, yeah. The, the only thing that I do see kind of as being a cop out to that excuse, and I, I, I can take part of the blame for this one, is is the research being conducted on the importance of the genetics for a mom when it comes to growing a giant buck you know mm -hmm. like putting that seed in somebody's head where oh i don't want to shoot that though because last year we had some big deer running around you know like i would worry a little bit about that because that's one of those things you can't control you don't know what that those genetics are like you don't know what kind of fun she's going to throw but quite honestly if you understand deer behavior and deer biology you know most landowners don't own enough property for it to matter what the does genetics are because any buck fawn she drops is going to end up five miles away you know it's just it's just how deer work yeah i don't know people like i said i i think the doe harvest thing is something that's kind of starting to go away and i'm at least getting traction with with a lot of the clients that 
yeah. that yeah. take issue with it, they can understand if you can sit down and you can have a conversation with them about the negative effects. Most often when, when they're not shooting does now, it's not so much because they're afraid that they're going to run out of bucks. It's because they have the misconception that their, their rut hunting is going to be exponentially better the more. Oh yeah. They. Yeah. That's that a majority of the cases when I run into that conversation, that's what it is. But having that yeah. conversation with them was like, okay, yeah, I bet you are getting a lot of bucks on camera during the rut. How many of them are daylight pictures? You know, that's where it starts to click for them when they're starting yeah. to make sense of, oh, okay, so he doesn't have to move. You know, I might get my neighbor's deer on my property to breed one of my does, but you're never going to see him. Unless, you know, you, you drop those doe numbers down to where he has to work a little bit harder for it. So I, I don't right. know. I, I think you just got to meet people where they're at and be understanding. You know, maybe somebody did grow up in a time where there wasn't many deer around. But I think as a whole with society, with hunt, the hunting collective, um, hive mindset of hunters, for the most part, I, I think we're trending in the right direction. And I, I do see what you're saying as far as the big bucks being on the magazine, kind of being that driving force. But I think there's a lot of good that comes from that too. You know, if every person that owns 200 acres thinks they can grow 180 inch giant, if they do proper habitat management techniques, all the power to them, you know, that's yeah. just more acres across the landscape that people are intensely managing properly to grow big deer. But like I started the podcast with my favorite thing about deer management is it helps all the other species in the area. That's so right. That's right. I, yeah. I, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing that we're kind of glamorizing the big buck mentality um, and that everything's getting, getting monetized, but it, it is something to be aware of. But like I was saying earlier, I, I do think hunters as a whole are starting to take a little more pride in that hunting as conservation mindset. And they're starting to get a, get a grasp of it where they can go out and have a conversation with the non hunter and kind of hold their own. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's, that's, that's the most important thing is that people are starting to educate themselves. Absolutely. And you know, something I've been, I've been promoting just kind of what, what we do at our farm, but you know, I've been over the years about, you know, venison and that's been one of my, you know, marketing for my consulting business is just, uh, you know, when, when, when you have that basic fundamentals, those basic, you know, QDM fundamentals of your property, you have that data sets as mm -hmm. far as, you know, you're, you have a pretty good idea about your population, deer per square mile and the ratio, farm recruitment, all that. You should have an understanding about how many you need to take. And then you, and, and then it's like you, you have a renewable resource of some high quality red meat on your property. And of course, you know, you don't own the animals. It's not like cattle, but there's a, I mean, there's a way of treating it like a, I mean, that's, you know, it's a renew, renewable resource. And I, that's, I mean, I, I, I think I, you know, we, you know, grow big bucks and everything, but my family looks at it as like that, that's a source of protein. Mm -hmm. and they're here and you manage them and you, you can harvest them every single year. And we, yep. and we fill our freezers and we give out meat, uh, all kinds of people. So it's definitely did good angle. I'm just waiting for that, for that, for that, for that research from MSU deer lab or Florida, or Auburn or, or UGA about, um, maybe some does, like maybe some kind of physical characteristic where they're like, okay, if you see a doe 
and she's, she's got a long nose <laughs> yeah or she's 120 pounds at this age or whatever then she's got the right genetics to pass down and you know not shoot that one i mean of course you got most people will say you got the older does you know d- d- depending on if you're trying to decrease or increase population which does shoot but maybe some have a physical characteristic that we can look at and identify mm. oh she's got this she's a good breeder you know she's going to breed the best but you know that's of course a fantasy world um that's that's what makes it fun you know that's what that's what all this makes it fun and, and so like you know like when i run like survey cameras and trail cameras like on my own property now other people's probably on my own property i do it but like i don't want to have a catalog i know some people they want that that the true trail camera survey where they have a quote catalog of their box you know of course beginning of the season early fall whatever who knows what's going to be around but i don't really I, I love trail cameras but i've really kind of fallen back using them on my own property because there's so much stuff to do like this past weekend i could you know i could have been rearranging trail cameras around but i also could have been you know working a chainsaw like there's usually always something to do mm-hmm. you know habitat wise ahead of trail cameras but I, personally I, I like kind of the idea of not really knowing you know it's, it's what makes it fun every single box and when someone yeah. when was done come out it it's surprising and when you have that catalog and you're waiting for oh well one of these five or six but if these show up i can't shoot them it's like uh i don't know i mean everyone's different that's just me personally but i i like that i i, I like keeping some mystery you know what <laughs> are your t- um there's tons of mystery. thoughts on the the live stream cameras i saw something posted the other day about some some companies are starting to do uh where you can you can log in and, and see what's going on right away i i don't know i'm i'm of the mindset where like i use cellular trail cameras yeah um i i run the cuddy links I wouldn't bat an eye. In fact, I would actually applaud if if they did a mandated twelve hour delay or twenty four hour delay on the images. Um, it's it's one of those things where it's is it morals, ethics, whatever. I don't know. You get to a certain point, and you can say the same thing about you know, like using thermal images to locate elk out west during the nighttime, and just like there's there's all these gray areas in hunting, and I, I think it's we live in a country where we have the freedom to to decide what's right or wrong for yourself. And if you're legal by the law, then, then go for it. But, you know, like Leopold said, he was like, do ethics are doing the, doing the right thing, even when the wrong things were legal. Yeah. Like that, that resonates with all those type of ethical questions as far as, um, you know, live stream trail cameras or, or a 10,000 yard gun or whatever, you know, I think it's great that we have the opportunity to make those decisions for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think everything I, I agree, I agree with everything you said. I, I, it looked like those live stream capabilities came out during that, that ATA show. Um, I think, it, you know, what was the companies that are doing it or the company that I've, I've only seen one, but it looked like it was kind of build marketed more towards like security purposes. You know, if you want to mm-hmm. keep abs in your farm, which, which does make sense. I mean, it's always good to have cameras, especially if you can have a, you know, a cell camera, live feed camera around a gate. I mean, if, you know, mm-hmm. someone's chicken coop. Yeah. I mean, you know, gates and locks only keep out honest people. So someone's going to come in your property <laughs> They're going to cut open a gate. If you have a camera there, they might look for one. 
Um, but yeah, I, yeah, exactly. That they're gonna look and might, might make a, you know, a light or something like that, and they'll take it. But but if it's in like a cloud or you know cell camera or live stream, you should still have that you know footage, even if they physically take the camera. But I, you know, I've got a couple cell cameras and and I like them. Um, I will say, no one, the companies don't talk so much about um, how difficult they can be to get the cell cellular mm-hmm. servers to work. Even if you if your cell phone has good service, that doesn't mean that camera's you know going to. But it, you know. I could see how, I mean, like without question, turkey season, it should be outlawed. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could have a cell camera up on uh, wherever, feed, food plot, wherever, and all of a sudden, well, there's one right yeah, over you there. You get to the other side of the property. Yeah. So it, it, and then deer hunting, I mean, I mean, you know, this, someone could easily set up a field or a food plot to where like you could sneak up on it with a rifle. If you know there's some deer out there, so it, it it's only in my opinion it's only a matter of time before some laws are passed. Um, how they trickle down, but it's not. Unfortunately, a, a lot of people won't obey by them. Um, I mean, I would think turkey season is where it's really. Yeah, that gonna, seems like a that seems like a no brainer to me. Yeah, that seems um definitely so. I do applaud state agencies seem to jump 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 the gun on the uh, on the drone thing. Like I feel like they uh, they got that in the law fairly quickly that you yeah. can use it for yeah for I mean I, and, and taking of wildlife. I mean to me that that's pretty as about this. I mean the the live stream and a, and a drone footage. Yeah, the drone's is, a live stream. <laughs> um, yeah, live stream could be even a little bit better as far as if you're trying to track something down. Um. Well, let's start to wrap this up. You had mentioned you've been doing more duck hunting or some duck hunting this year. Have you cooked anything yet? Uh, yeah, I cooked one of the mallard breasts. So what I did was I, I sous vide it. Oh, nice. Got it. Yep. Got. I forget what temperature I set it at. We got it up temp and then just just seared it to to finish. I left the skin on that one. Um, so that was the only one I tried so far. I got a, got a couple more sitting in the freezer. Um looking forward looking forward to working away at it i want to have some i want to have some people i hunted with over though that's part of the reason i'm holding off is i kind of want to share the bounty it's 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 still great and satisfying being able to um to cook something you harvest on your own but it's it's always fun to be able to share share the the bounty with others yeah sounds like it i i just got a or not what's your favorite way to prep them a duck. Mm-hmm. I tell you, um, I like to smoke them. I like the um, even even if it's like a wood duck, wood duck or mallard, you know, pluck them, try to keep the skin on. the The skin really needs to stay on, and then um, brine it. I, I haven't done it in a while. I I think I just used like a similar like chicken brine, mm-hmm. mostly water. I'll put some like honey. I don't think honey does anything. Blake Blake brown sugar in it, salt pepper. Brine it overnight and then smoke it. Um, yeah, that that I'm looking forward to messing around with it. You know, it's, it's yeah, new. it's a different taste. It's um, I I got a blackstone griddle for Christmas and I've just set it up finally. Nice. I, I I need to finish seasoning the top, but I I I'm looking forward to using that. Um, every uh, every every one of my guys that has one absolutely loves them. Yeah. So. 
It's uh, well, one of them got destroyed by a black bear in Pennsylvania earlier this year. <laughs> Did it just smell? Did it just reek of food? Yeah, they that? had. Well, they had the drip <laughs> pan. They didn't clean the drip pan out. So, <laughs> so make sure you keep your drip pans clean if you're leaving it on the porch. I think he went through yeah. the screen <laughs> to get to it. <laughs> probably yep. scratched. Probably scratched the uh, the griddle up. Do you have a book recommendation for us? I mean, I know you. You've been on, so I've asked you all these questions. Do you, do you have? Yeah, um, I got one. This is the one. This is the one I've been reading right now. How to clone a mammoth um, by Beth Shapiro. Cool. Um, it's it's interesting, and it poses a lot of interesting questions mm-hmm. as far as the future of conservation goes. So, um, I just wrote an op-ed and submitted it. I don't know where it's going to be published yet, but I'll let you know when it comes out. Kind of nice. on on the whole concept of de-extinction, and it's. It's really fascinating when you, when you try to tease it apart because I'm looking at something like that book in particular is talking about bringing a mammoth back and there's uh, Colossal um, Biosciences, I think is the name of the organization down in Austin, Texas right now, who claims they're going to be able to have a mammoth on the ground by next year. Uh-uh. Um, the I don't know. It, it, it's a weird, weird thing where like on one side of the coin, it's like, okay, they, they claim it's going to be able to help mitigate some of these greenhouse gases by having a, a heavy herbivore up north. They, they already have uh, Pleistocene Park scenario in mm-hmm. Siberia. They got set aside for to put all these mammoths after they, they clone them, essentially. Um, and it's supposed to help the, taking trees out they're worried about the trees that are growing up there because we don't have any mammoths or they're retaining radiant heat putting it into the root system and melting the permafrost and they think mammoths are the answer which is great but my thing is i don't know that i'm comfortable calling whatever creature they create a mammoth because all they're they're taking these bits and pieces of, of ancient dna out of these samples and they're they're putting it together as best they can and then they're kind of filling in the gaps with an asian elephant which is like 99 percent same genetically Hmm. so are you ending up with a mammoth when it gives birth or is it just going to be you know a genetically modified asian elephant and then the other side of the coin earlier you were talking about how how the white tail in north america like so much of their behavior is learned maternally from their mom they spend so much time they spend you know those fawns the does are going to spend maybe their lifetime with their mom whereas the bucks are going to spend a year with her an elephant on average is going to spend you know 16 to 20 years with its mom that's a okay. lot of learned behavior yeah. there's there's no other mammoth to teach this new baby mammoth how to behave <laughs> and act like a mammoth I don't yeah. know. It's it's fascinating. And like the other side of the coin is like, okay, now do we have a cop out if the species does go extinct, but we know we can, you know, bring it back in the lab and then get it back in the zoo. Yeah. So that's not extinct. Like, or is it going to be become a cop out for taking care of the situation before yeah. the problem occurs? Um, it's there's a lot of science in that book. There's a lot of big words. Um, some sections are kind of hard to get through if you're not familiar with, with with reading a lot of tech it's not super technical but um yeah it just it it's an interesting uh it's an interesting book and it's an interesting concept and i don't know i i, I think about genetic engineering and in how i see it playing into wildlife management down in mm-hmm. the future one of one of the the areas i think that 
I, I'm most excited about is you look at something like there's a there's a fungus going on in South America that's depleting a lot of our amphibian populations. They're getting this fungus and they're getting sick. Well, what if there's a gene we can manipulate where those frogs aren't any longer susceptible to that foreign fungus? It was brought yeah. in from Asia, I think, is where it originated, where those those frogs had a resistance to it. But being able to do stuff like that, or what if it's uh, manipulating uh to make uh, a marine animal more tolerant of more acidic water or like doing little tweaks and stuff like that. Like, is, is, is that the direction we should be putting our funding? Um, I don't know. Lot, lots of interesting questions. And it, of course it gets into, you know, the market hunting and um, kind of the reason we're at the state, you know, that we are as far as conservation goes across the globe. But it, it certainly posed some interesting questions. And I think anybody who who likes thinking about the future of, of wildlife management would, would, would enjoy that one. I like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot to think about. I, I mean, I think I was picturing Jurassic Park. Um, yeah. When, when you were describing that, I, I recently watched that when we, we flew out at LA for the national championship game. And I watched that movie on the way out for the first time in probably 20 something years. Um, yeah, you know, that setting in the wildlife world, I mean, what, what comes to mind was, you know, what happened, what, what we see is, um, you know, uh, breeding of bucks to, you know, what, what, what they do that in Texas and there's, different, you know, pay, pay to hunt high fence places. I mean, some of those deer are just, I mean, it, it, it's, it's just, just my opinion, but I mean, it's wrong what people are doing. I mean, they're, they're, they're growing some of these antlers so big that it's just, it's way too big for the species to carry around. I mean, they're just, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, ins it's insane. And they're, they're growing it. It's not like the actual animals growing that. So it's, yeah, a lot of that would certainly definitely be, um, we'll start to see more and more, more and more of that on the horizon. What's kind of round this out as far as conservation? We talked, we talked a lot about it. What's something maybe we haven't talked about it. Is there something maybe, you know, you've, you've seen pop up in your work around the country, um, or maybe a conservation related issue in the Southeast that maybe we haven't talked about that you think should really kind of be on people's radar, whether it's, whether it's mm -hmm. really big or, you know, really kind of small, but maybe it's, you know, getting a foothold. So one of, one of the things that I took note of this, this past year was, um, whenever I bring up doe harvest and increasing the amount of, of, of antler this deer taken on a property, the, the biggest pushback I typically get from people is they don't, they can't eat that much meat. Yeah. Um, so it's an easy cop out for them to say, well, you know, I only got so much room in my freezer when the reality is uh, every state I hunt in has some sort of hunters feed the hungry program. There's some means to be able to donate that meat. Um, and I think us as outdoorsmen and quote unquote, a public figure on this platform, I think it's important to educate people that there are opportunities out there, whether it's you going out and harvesting more does and being able to donate them or opening up your property to, you know, take a new hunter out and let them harvest a doe. Um, I think there's options out there and it goes to a really good cause. And I, I just, I don't think people are, are utilizing that, that program nearly enough, you know, that, that, that mindset of, well, 
if it's not going to benefit me, then I, I can't, right. you know, I can't justify it. Well, here's an opportunity to do something good for other people as well as, you know, increase the the habitat on your property. That's not only you got one less doe out there, but all her subsequent fawns are no longer going to be eaten on your, on your oak regeneration or what have you. Um, so if there's big conservation message I have is just get familiar with those programs and be open-minded to, to getting new hunters out there. And that's what I've been doing the last couple of years. I've been trying to get mm -hmm. at least one new hunter out and get them on a doe. It's, it's checking a, a nameless harvest off of my quota. And it's also getting someone else a new experience and getting them engaged in the outdoors. So um, yeah, just shit, shit. Like the common theme for this is just share in the bounty, you know, like, yeah, I like that. We're so fortunate to be in a place where we're managing land and we have the problem of having too many healthy does on the landscape. That's right. Know? Yeah. Let's, let's take advantage of that and, you know, not only feed some people, but teach others how to, how to procure their own meat. That's right. You're, you're, you're spot on with that. There, there's, um, there's a lot of avenues that, that a hunter can take to, you know, donate that meat, give it, I mean, I, you know, it, it, it might just be having conversations with like people, you know, um, we have a lot of friend, friends and family that we give, you know, whole, whole deer to every year. We'll shoot it, clean it, hang it, get a process for them, how they want to, or give them whole pieces, whatever. Basically we're giving them all the wrapped up meat, you know, we're not just giving them right. deer, but kind of make it easy for them. And, um, I tell you, I mean, shoot, like, like now more so than ever with the cost of food, people, especially if you can, if they're not really, if they're not hunters or, or familiar with it, you know, invite them over to the house, you know, uh, cook some dinner, cook some venison for them. As long as you know how to, as long as the, the, you know, the person knows how <laughs> you to, know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. What to do and, you know, how to really properly handle the meat from the time you kill it in the woods, the time you grill it or smoke it or whatever you do with it. There's definitely some, you know, good ways. And, and this, and it's very, it's, it's very similar to the, you know, the meat practices that, that the meat industry does. I mean, they do a lot of things and the, you know, the meat industry is a lot different. Not, not always great things, but they do things in place to make the meat taste better as far as how they handle it. Um, there's, there, there's a ton of people that would love to have that, love to have venison, but maybe they don't know how to ask because they don't really know, you know, is Zach and Mark, are they just shooting? They don't really know what we're shooting. I mean, they don't know if we're shooting one or two deer or we're shooting a hundred a year. They have no clue. So they don't right. really know, like, if they ask us, some, at least in my opinion, if they're asking for venison, are they taking it from my freezer? Well, no. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm trying to place, I'm trying, I'm trying to place, you know, meat to where if we have guests at a farm, I'll tell people, depending on the time of year, I'm like, listen, um, I'd like some doe shot. Of course, if you see a buck, shoot a doe, but I'm sorry. <laughs> if, you see, if you see a buck and it's it's what we're trying to shoot, shoot it. But if you if you see a doe, I can place the meat for you. You know, like if someone up right. want meat, or maybe they don't want all the meat because everyone can't take a whole can't fit a whole deer or, or multiple deer in their house or freezers. But if they want a little bit of meat, I'll take the rest and I'll donate. Right. Hunters for hunger, I'll donate to someone I know. Um, that is 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 definitely something that um you know, is, is, is absolutely, absolutely worthwhile. And, and what you were talking about earlier in this podcast about, um, you know, getting after antler steer and not waiting to the rut, not waiting to after the rut. 
we've always invited a lot of friends and family and clients to come hunt, but we, we started doing this. Oh, it's nothing serious. This little dough invitational tournament. It's just to have a little fun weekend in September before even pre-ruts really kind of fire it up, have a bunch of people really kind of first big hunts of the year, thin out some does. And if everyone doesn't want the meat, that's fine. I, I, I'll, I'll handle it. But that way, you know, you're, you're having, you're having some fun with it, you know, maybe have right. a, have a little contest if you want to about, you know, maybe like total pounds that someone puts in the ground or, you know, biggest dough, smallest dough, you know, stuff like that, just to make kind of kind of set some goals. And I tell you, like, do it like if we didn't do that kind of stuff, we would never even come close to meeting our harvest goals. It's just it's one of those right. things where you got to hit uh, throughout the year. Just but, you know, make it fun. And the bucks, I mean, I tell you, I, I used to be so worried, like, oh, shoot, we're we're going to have this weekend in late September. We're, we're going to hammer the does and then it's just going to screw up the entire run. Got piles everywhere. Yeah. It's just all, all the predator, all the, all the, the all the yeah. three county over, all the predators from three counties are just going to influx in and it died. It, it, it died. Man, it, you know this better than I do. Like when those deer hit that, like those biological, uh, you know, steps they take during the rut. You know, the testosterone, the going in the heat, there's a lot of, you can get away with a lot during the rut. Or I shouldn't say a right. lot. You can get away as a hunter with more than you can any other time of year. And um, so, but I mean, I I, 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 you know, I I was skeptical at first. I mean, I especially when we really ramped up our deer program, as far as our, 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 our doe harvest. I was like, you know what? This might be a year or two where we're just hammering the does and we don't kill many bucks. That's not what happens. They're not mm-hmm. going anywhere. Yeah, and, and, you're not going to you're not going to extirpate them. <laughs> right, right. It, it it it's not. But you know, it, it goes back to everything you've been saying. This episode is about habitat. You give the deer what they need. You know, as far as the habitat, they're not they're not going. They're gonna they're going they're gonna stick around. So, well, Zach, I appreciate you being on. Where. Again, it's always been it's always fun having you on. Where can people find you? You can find me. Uh, I'm most active social media on Instagram. That's at Whetstone Habitat. W H E T S T O N E Habitat. Um, you can reach out to me WhetstoneHabitat.com. Again, that's Whetstone with an H. Um, shoot me an email, Zach Z A C K at WhetstoneHabitat.com. Um, yeah, I'm hoping to hoping to get some more video content out there this year. I got a couple of projects lined up where I have um, somebody coming out to film and put some stuff together. So I'm hoping to be be a little bit more active as far awesome. as uh, my video content goes. But yeah, keep an eye out. I got some articles coming up, QDM, um, Game and Fish. I'm hoping to have one in NWTF by the end of the year. So. Nice. That's um, awesome. Yeah, I'll be around trying trying to stay relevant and uh just I'm I'm looking forward to getting after it this year, man. It's it's yeah. it's so rewarding having I, I love the phone calls when it's like, you're never gonna believe this, you know. You know, it actually showed <laughs> up or like it's working, you know. That that that's what I live for is is just having those those follow-up conversations with my yeah. clients. Whether it's good or bad, you know, whether we're trying to problem solve something or he's just telling me a hunting story. I uh I, I appreciate the interactions I get on a daily basis through my job around some some like-minded conservation-focused individuals. So that's awesome. Yeah, I, I think it's a great idea about about video content. Um, 
just because I mean, you know, so many people consume stuff. They 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 read posts on social media, read articles or whatever it might be. And but you know, so many times people people read something, but they they mm-hmm. need that visualization of seeing Zach out. You know, say okay, well, this is the plane he's talking about. This is where he's talking about when he was talking about you know doing the A, B, and C. Absolutely, I I think that's awesome. And everybody out there, I would implore all of y'all to you know reach out to Zach, talk to him, follow him. He, he you you put out a, a lot of good content and, and some great articles. And I and I like I like your approach. You know, it's it's um it's a good solid approach that's going to work. Um, it's going to work when you land. So, well, Zach, I appreciate that, Mark. Absolutely. Um. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. I couldn't, this podcast wouldn't be anything without good guests like yourself. So I always appreciate guest time, especially yours. Cause you're, um, you, you are successful in your, in your, in your own right, own right. And your clients are su- successful too. So, um, maybe we'll touch base again this spring. See how, see how your turkey season's going. Are, are you going to be at the Southeast Deer study group? I am. Awesome. I'll be there too. I was going to ask you before we hung up because I know you said you you um you you are or you might be going to the NWTF. I'll be there. Uh-huh. Cool. Yeah, I, I'm that that's 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 the weekend leading up to that. The deer. I'll be group, there. Right? No, it's two uh, two weekends before because I got I got NWTF is Valentine's okay. week. The week after that, SCI convention is in Nashville. I'm going to that as well. Um, and then the following, I think I leave the following that Sunday, maybe we drive down to the study group. Nice. Um, Yeah. I'll I'll be, um, I I, I think I I did just book plane tickets. Yeah. I've been doing that conference past couple of years, but it's all been, you know, virtual. Um, I'm really looking forward to, um, I'm looking forward to going to, in fact, I was talking, I was messaging with Dr. Will Goldsby. You probably know. Is he going to be there? Yeah, is he gonna well, be he's going to be in the NWTF, and he's not sure if he's going to be at Deer Study Group because he's going to be in the NWTF. Okay. I hope he's going to be there. I was like, well, if, you, if you're there, Me I'm going <laughs> to. If you're there, I'm, I'm going to track you down and introduce myself. But yeah, I, I'm looking forward just to be in there because like that's. I mean, it's probably obvious if it isn't to anybody, but that's the kind of stuff I nerd out on. I, I just love that you know science. Uh, just that it just, all that stuff just makes you think. So yeah, well, awesome. That yeah. So uh, I guess I'll get to meet meet you in person. Yes, sir. Yeah, that yeah. Looking forward to it. Well, cool. Well, thanks, Zach. I appreciate you being on. Everybody, check out Zach Vakurvich, Whetstone Habitat. Give him a like. Give him a follow. Give him a ring. Um, talk to him about your property. Try to get him out there. And um, Zach knows what he's talking about. Good guy. So thanks for being on, Zach. Appreciate you, Mark. You take care. And remember, uh, conservation is above all.